Hello, everybody, and welcome to All N. My name is The Legend of Zelda for Seth's Adventures. And I am the Eric Multiform Mobile Identifier. 2022 is an exciting new year full of exciting new potential. And we are thrilled to announce here at All In that each item in our news roundup this week is going to be sold individually as its own audio NFT. Uh, Eric, what are you talking about? That's literally not how NFTs work. People can download and listen to the entire show for free. Besides, we've got a great indie showcase to kick off the new year with Loop Hero by Four Quarters and Devolver Digital. Ooh. Maybe that indie showcase could be an NFT. I'm pretty sure I picked up some Bitcoin as a resource in that game. Uh, Oh, I've got it, Seth. In our top five this week, we are counting down the top five things we'd love to see from Sonic Frontiers. I mean, that could be five different NFTs right there. Eric, you're scaring the children. Don't worry, everyone. I've got something comforting for you. We're bringing you another all-end retrospective this week to celebrate the silver anniversary of one of the greatest games ever made, Final Fantasy VII. Oh yeah, going for the nostalgia angle. I like that. That'll definitely sell us a few NFTs. Also, blockchain. And uh, yeah, did, did I mention Bitcoin? Eric, I'm beginning to think that you have no idea what any of those words mean. Well, it seems to be working out fairly well for Square Enix and Konami here in the new year. And if it can work for them, it can work for us in this metaverse. It's time to go all in. That's right, everybody. Welcome to the first real, true, proper episode. We did the Golden Aces last week to send off 2021, look forward to 2022, but now we're here. Now we're here. We're in it. We're in the thick of it. In 2022, the the year of Undertale being played for the Pope. Um, <laughs> the, the year, the year of... Uh, the li- literally the year of our Lord. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Pokemon Legends is coming out in just a couple of weeks. This is the year of our Arceus. That's true. The year of the Almighty Sinnoh. Uh, the, the year of... Uh, there, there's already been a Daigo moment this year. Uh, oh, that was legendary. <laughs> so, yeah. there's there, It's been a crazy year already, but we are happy to also be bringing you another year of All In, a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show where each and every Saturday, no shells left unturned and no point is left unearned. We want to welcome new and returning listeners to this insanity that already is 2022. Um, lots of stuff going on. We're not, unfortunately, Eric, not selling this podcast as a series of individual NFTs. Um, but it, it seems is- like such a good idea in my limited knowledge of how <laughs> NFTs work. It just seems like such a wonderful idea. How could it not be? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? NFTs aren't going to blow up in anybody's face. But um, anyway... All of that biting social commentary aside, um, one thing that is cool, one thing that is nice and worth shouting out, is some new five-star reviews, Eric. Yay! Yay! They like us. They really like us. And uh, we have gotten <laughs> That's actually multiple. not how that quote goes. A lot of people misrepresent that. 
I guess I just misrepresented it. How's the quote actually go? Oh, it was, it was from Sally Field accepting her Oscar. She was like, uh, it likes me. This means that you really like me. Oh, right, 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 right. It's, it's I, I don't those... even think that's I don't even think that's correct. But there, there's always been this weird Mandela effect around mm-hmm. that quote. Same with like the Monopoly guy having a monocle, which he doesn't. I don't know. Mandela effects just have always fascinated me. It, it is fascinating. It's the, you know, the Luke, I am your father thing, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting stuff. But anyway, uh, new five star reviews. We actually have multiple five star reviews to shout out this week from Podchaser. Both of these reviews are coming from Podchaser. And the first one comes from Tim, our buddy Tim from the Nintendo Dads, NeoPrime33 himself. Uh, Great guy. We are big Tim fans here. And um, Tim says, a variety show. Not a podcast, a variety show. Come on. This is a freaking awesome, and it's a must in your Nintendo rotation. I especially love their top five discussions and developer interviews. So that's that's a great review. Thank you so much for that, Tim. We really appreciate that. Um, and then the next one I've got here is from Solo Something, a valued community member in the all-in community who left us a five-star review on Podchaser, just like you can, and says... Very enjoyable podcast to listen to that I can describe as a journey as they always deliver a variety of topics across the gaming world. The podcast is always professional, clean, and enjoys including humor that will leave you eager for the next show. So we really, really appreciate that five-star review, Solo Something. Uh, Solo Something's a great community member over on our Discord and uh, really appreciate the feedback. Guys, as always, if you want to drop some words, leave us a five-star review either on iTunes or Podchaser. Also Spotify, although you can't drop words on Spotify, we still definitely appreciate the support there. Um, It's really quick and simple to drop a five-star review, and it helps us so, so much with visibility for the show. So we really, really appreciate it. And if you do drop some words, I will shout it out here at the beginning of the episode uh, after you do that. So really, really appreciate all of our lovely five-star reviews. Love the support. Thanks, guys. Uh (laughs) Aha. But anyway, um, Eric, crazy stuff aside... We got, you know, the Pope playing Undertale, I guess. We got <laughs> we got Daigo so moments fun. happening. We got five-star reviews. What's been going on in your world this week? All right. For those who don't know what, what Seth is talking about with the Daigo moment, legitimately the moment of the year within the fighting game community, within the FGC, probably has already happened. <laughs> so... Uh, I wouldn't even say arguably the most famous moment, pretty objectively the most famous moment in the history of the fighting game community is what is known as Evo Moment 37, which was this insane, insane moment from a match between Justin Wong and the Beast Daigo Umahara playing Street Fighter 3 Third Strike. Way, way back, I think it was in uh, Evo 2002 or 2004. Sounds right. But... uh, but essentially, in a nutshell, I'm not going to explain all the technical aspects of it, but uh, Daigo Umahara was playing Ken, Justin Wong was playing Chun-Li, and Justin Wong had gotten Daigo down to just a pixel of health, a sliver of his health left to the point where even just blocking a special move would have been enough to, uh, to KO Daigo. But Justin Wong had enough for his super... So he just throws his super out there. Now, 
one of the big interesting gameplay hooks of Street Fighter 3 Third Strike is the fact that you can actually parry mm-hmm. attacks. If you can do this within like a one or two frame window, you can not just block an attack, but you can completely prevent all damage from that attack and give you a few frame counterattack window. It, if you're good enough essentially to do a parry of a punch or a fireball, then it sets you up in prime uh, it sets you up in prime position for a counterattack. The problem is Chun Li Super was, I believe, fifteen or seventeen hits, and the reason it's the most legendary moment in the history of the fighting game community is because Daigo parried that entire attack, and then coming out of the air after parrying the final attack in the air, came out with a round-ending combo. It absolutely popped off the entire crowd at Evo. It's gone on to become one of the most famous moments in the history of video games itself. And just a couple days ago, it happened again to Justin Wong. Not just to any random streamer, not just to any rando online. It actually happened again to Justin Wong. He was playing Chun-Li. He was playing against someone playing Ken. And in a similar situation... He threw out his super before saying, right before he did it, he said, no, this this guy, this guy, not Daigo. He's not Daigo. He's not Daigo. <laughs> and then he threw out his super. And sure enough, the guy Daigoed the super, parried every hit of it and followed up with that exact same combo. All while Justin is on stream, just like dying inside. Like, no, he Daigo. No. <laughs> great moment great moment history repeating itself absolutely legendary that was one of the best things that i've ever seen it was so great just not only seeing it happen again but seeing it happen again to justin wong like i'm sure he has ptsd at this point from that Stop, if you're not a member of the fighting, <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> if you're not a member of the fighting game community it might seem kind of you know, superfluous, but to see the most legendary moment in the history of fighting games essentially done again to the same person who was the victim of it the first time, there's just this poetic beauty to it all. But I'm sorry, I'm done talking about that. I'm sorry. Even FGC moments are getting re-released in 2022. Exactly. (laughs) Go check out the clip. It's definitely worth it. I hope somebody does like a side-by-side comparison. That'd be awesome. Somebody, if you're out there, do a side-by-side comparison of that from uh, from the old Evo and from this new new clip clip. that Justin Wong just uploaded. Oh, that was just so beautiful. Sorry, I just I had to shout that out (laughs) because, again, genuinely, that's probably going to be the FGC moment of the year here in 2022 and we're we we're just now a week in to the year but you know aside from geeking out about that what have i been up to well a few things i have reignited my love for doctor who on hbo max nice so many many years ago i had never seen doctor who uh but you know, it was kind of slowly becoming this phenomenon here in the west i'll never forget when i was working at kennedy space center we had so many people come through, obviously visitors from all over the world come to Kennedy Space Center. And we had a ton of people coming in from, from England and Great Britain and, and you know, that entire island, Scotland and Wales. And, and it's, 
obviously Doctor Who is, you know, it's it's not really hyperbole to to liken it to, to Star Wars or Star Trek over there. It is massively popular, and it's kind of becoming that way over here now. But we had so many things come through security, so much Doctor Who memorabilia from people who, you know, who lived over there. And I'll never forget, I had this family of four come through, and they came through the metal detector. They had all their stuff in the bucket and, you know, keys and stuff or whatever. But one of the kids there had a Doctor Who wallet that they had thrown in the tub. And I, I hadn't seen an episode of the show, but just because of the the TARDIS, the iconic blue police box that the Doctor travels around in, right? You know, I'd become familiar enough with that that I was able to spot a Doctor Who piece of memorabilia. So, uh, with a smile on my face, I take out the I take the wallet out of the tub and I just kind of gesture to the kid. I was I didn't know whether it was the the boy or the girls. I was like, so <laughs> which one of you has the Doctor Who wallet? And then the father just kind of sheepishly reaches over and very so gently puts it in his pocket. And that was kind of the moment that I realized like, oh, this is a big deal. Yeah. So I finally was able to 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 catch up with the show myself and I completely realized why it's such a big deal. It's it's genuinely one of the most creative science fiction anything that I've ever seen. It's absolutely insane. Some of the episodes do require a massive suspense of disbelief, uh, suspension of disbelief. But but it's it's a ton of fun. And I watched the entire new series years ago, leading up to Peter Capaldi. And I've actually missed the past few seasons. I missed. Peter Capaldi's final season as the Doctor. I miss Jodie Whittaker. I basically missed her entire run. Uh, so I'm going back now that I have HBO Max again, and I'm going back and kind of reacquainting myself with the world of the Doctor. So that's been fun this past week. It's so funny. That's that's basically exactly my journey with Doctor Who. Like, got really, really into it, you know, with the Chris Eccleston, like, run and the kind of like mm-hmm. relaunch of, you know, Doctor Who's been around since the 60s when it was like a radio drama. Um, I mean, it's it's been around for forever. And, um, you know, Doctor Who's, like you just said, a cultural phenomenon. I got really into it, like you said, all the way up to Peter Capaldi. And then, yeah, I sort of fell off. And then, like, I haven't seen any Jodie Whittaker at all, basically. And um, I haven't jumped back in. I did hear that Russell T. Davies is returning as showrunner. That's really exciting for me. Yeah, I did so. hear that because his work with David Tennant, I mean, that's just... Oh, it's chef's uh, that's kiss. Just, uh, oh, it's so good. That's David my doctor. David Tennant runs the doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, David Tennant did a fantastic job. Don't get me wrong. I really like what like all the different characters bring to the role. I like Chris Eccleston's doctor. I love Matt Smith's doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. My friend who actually... Uh, my friends who kind of brought me in, they were all already massive Doctor Who fans. And the first time I saw an episode was with the launch of Peter Capaldi's Doctor Mm -hmm. uh, with his first episode with the dinosaur traipsing around London. Uh, Yes, dear listeners, it's it's just as crazy as it sounds. Oh, there's some nuts episodes of Doctor Who, y'all. Yeah, but that they were already massive fans, and their favorite Doctor was the one that had just finished at that time, who was Matt Smith. So yeah. I watched that episode, and within 10 minutes, again, there's a dinosaur traipsing around Victorian London who spits this blue police box out of his mouth, and there winds up being these weird clockwork uh, cyborgs who are stealing skin and parts from people in London. <laughs> I'm like, this is the most insane, most amazing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> 
But at that point, I was like, let me go back to the beginning because it was on Netflix at the time. So at that point, I just I I went back and I started with Chris Eggleston and I basically binged through everything up to that point. And then I watched the next couple seasons with them just kind of geeking out every week when a new one dropped. And of course, the 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 iconic uh, Christmas specials each year. Oh, yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, due to life and a few other things, I did I have kind of fallen off over the past few years. But am now reacquainting myself. Uh, but within the world of video games, I just want to send a huge shout out to Chorus Worldwide, who provided us a copy of their new Dungeon Munchies, mm-hmm. and that was a really interesting little title that was shown off during the Indie World Showcase that. Shadow Drop Chicory, and that showed off a ton of other really interesting, really cool uh, games. Dungeon Munchies was uh, similarly Shadow Dropped during that presentation. And again, Course Worldwide pro- uh, provided us a copy. Thank you again. This is not the first time they have uh, done that. Thank you guys very much for Rising Hell. Absolutely adore Rising Hell. Still very much looking forward to that next character whenever you decide to drop that. But I've been playing through Dungeon Munchies this past week. And I, I kind of hate to say it, I'm I'm really not liking it as much as I liked Rising Hell or a few other things from Chorus, like Coffee Talk. It's, I don't know, there, there's there's a lot of jank mm. in the game going on. The main onus behind the game is you play as this recently resurrected zombie. You essentially just go from left to right. It's not even really a Metroidvania because there's not a lot of backtracking. It's essentially right. a 2D action platformer where all the enemies drop parts and you use those parts to craft new equipment and new abilities for your character, which is mechanics that we've seen done, you know, hundreds of times over at this point. They tried to make it interesting by turning it into a cooking style uh, motif, but they don't really ever do anything with that specifically. It's You're still just... Uh, you're still just taking the the resources that you've gotten and then choosing something to make with those resources. There's no real gameplay element to cooking up your new abilities or your new equipment. The actual combat in the game is incredibly chaotic. And if it were less janky, it could be more enjoyable. But unfortunately, it is really janky. So the combat essentially just kind of bogs down to legitimately the best strategy for the combat in the game is just to hold the different attack buttons and just try to dodge in and out of your opponent's attacks. Just hold the buttons down, watch your character just swing wildly and just wait until you beat the opponent. Mm. Unfortunately, the maps themselves aren't super well designed. There's some weird stuff going on with the story that doesn't quite endear itself there's a lot of stuff going on in the game that I feel like has potential. And if you'd given it some more time to cook and some more playtesting and maybe a little bit more refinement, I could see something. I, I could see this game being fairly special. But as it is right now, I, as much as I hate to say it, it, it is kind of hard to recommend. And yeah. Chorus Worldwide even actually released a statement on the game just this past week uh, because the the version they shadow dropped on the Nintendo Switch, even it's it's not even actually finished yet. I was going to say, they're kind of treating it like it's an early access sort of thing, right? Yeah. So the statement from Course Worldwide uh, says that 
We, quote, are proud to have released Dungeon Munchies onto the Nintendo Switch and want to assure everyone that the game is a complete and finished version of the first two chapters of the story, which will ultimately conclude with an additional chapter currently in development and scheduled for a mid-2022 release. When Chapter 3 is cooked and ready to serve, it will be delivered to everyone as a free update. The game's early access status on Steam is a reflection of the full vision for the game being three chapters long, therefore continuing the story past the current two chapters and also an opportunity for players to buy the game at a reduced price. Uh, so so yeah, it was, it was kind of weird uh, if you had bought the game and already played it and realized that this game that you've already paid for, you couldn't actually beat so I am glad that they did come out and and say that as like, hey, yes, the, the final part of the game is coming. And if you've already bought the game, it's going to be a free update. Apparently, the game's price is actually going to go up once they release that uh, once they release that final chapter. So if this is a game that you are interested in picking up at all, I would do that before the final chapter releases, because again, according to them, once that final chapter releases, the base price of the game will go up. But if you've already bought the game, you're getting the, the final chapter as a piece of free DLC. So, uh, so in addition to just being kind of janky, I did think it was handled kind of bizarrely. Right. So again, we hope every game that we play is going to be amazing. That's just unfortunately not going to be the case. Yeah. And if I had, if I had to, if you're going to twist my arm behind my back right now, I would pretty easily say that this isn't a game that I don't think I'd be able to recommend to you. So that's unfortunate. Yeah. Like I said, still big fans of course, worldwide. Absolutely adore coffee talk. We absolutely loved, uh, rising hell. We did indie showcases on both of those games, but this one, unfortunately, doesn't quite live up to some of the other games in their catalog. Well, I mean, one thing that is, I mean, the fact that they're keeping an ongoing conversation as weird a strategy as that is, maybe it at least is worth reevaluating later on once the game's finished and and maybe gets a little bit more, you know, cook time. Um, you know, kind of wish that they had just held off on releasing it until it already had that cook time. But, you know, things, things happen. It's not easy making games. It's not easy publishing games. So, um, things like this do happen from time to time and maybe it's worth another look in the future once it's done. And I'd be, I'd be all for it. If the game winds up getting patched and, and ironed out quite a bit, I would be more than happy to come back to the game and reassess it at a later date. So we'll see. We will see. But, you know, we I've played so many indie games recently. I've just been really jonesing, just really, really jonesing for just a sandbox style, big open world style game. Something like, I guess it was just being so excited for the re-release of the Grand Theft Auto trilogy mm. for so long that it just really got me in the mood f- to play a game like that because it's actually been a pretty long time. I think Spider-Man on the PlayStation 4 uh, which I played when it first came out. I think that was the last kind of sandbox open world game that I've played, which is kind of crazy considering how many of them there are out in the wild. Yeah. But I've just been wanting to play a game like that for so long. So I finally picked up Destroy All Humans on the Nintendo <laughs> Switch. Nice. And I've got to say, that was absolutely the game that I needed to play this week. <laughs> 
just the incredibly camp B movie. For those who have never played, uh, for those who have never played Destroy All Humans, especially back when it released on the PlayStation Two, was was there a GameCube port? I don't think so. I don't think there was. No, no. But they did remaster it and re-release it here on the Nintendo Switch, and it's basically like Mars Attacks in Grand Theft Auto form, because you play as an actual little green or gray in this case, little gray man called crypto. Who's got this incredible Jack Nicholson complex. <laughs> uh, and you, you go around doing all kinds of there's, there's actual probing in the game. That's an actual weapon. And then you've got your disintegrator ray and your zapomatic, and you've actually got flying saucers. It's incredibly campy, but it's just so much fun. There's a bunch of stuff to run around in this open world and collect. The missions are handled with, you know, the tongue firmly within the cheek. Mm-hmm. But but this was absolutely the game that I needed this past week. I've been having an, a, just such a fun time coming back after so long to to destroy all humans. I've been having such a blast. So thank you guys. Thank you, THQ Nordic. I don't get the opportunity to say that very often. <laughs> thank you, THQ Nordic, for re-releasing this on the Nintendo Switch. I, yeah, again, I know I've already said it twice, but this was 100% the game that I needed this past week. So good. Uh, definitely going to be playing that more over the next couple weeks. I know we've got a ton of stuff to get to. Uh, but I'm definitely going to be messing around on that for the next few weeks, probably. But speaking of getting to stuff, Seth, what have you been up to? Yeah, so it's been a weird week for me. I've actually been off from the day job all week uh, because I said last week that my wife and I had tested negative for COVID. Um, mm-hmm. Well, as it turns out, that was a false negative. We got tested yeah. too early. So Essentially, my wife started getting sick last on Christmas Day. Essentially, she started getting sick. Um, we got tested uh, that following Monday, and it was it was you know like I said came up negative, and that was all fine. Um, we got retested on Wednesday because uh, my wife's boss was kind of like, "Hey, it's possible you tested too early. You could have gotten a false negative." So we got retested that following Wednesday, and sure enough, came up with a positive test. Um, so we both tested positive for COVID despite the fact that we were both fully vaccinated and, and social distance. And my wife and I are very adamant about wearing our masks more out. So that that's just PSA guys, like just be careful. Um, despite everything, there's variants going around, like it's, it's intense. There's surges all over the country. Um, so, you know, just be safe, get your shots, wear your masks, and um, just, you know, follow guidelines and just be as safe as possible out there. Because despite all of our best efforts, my wife and I still got it. So Yeah, I'm vaccinated and I'm actually currently waiting on a COVID test result myself, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact. Uh, it's, it's been kind of a weird week. I can't believe I didn't mention this. But uh, yeah, in, in terms of medical and stuff like that, I also had an emergency tooth extraction this past week. Oh, so yeah. if I sound weird or off at all, it's because I'm still kind of adjusting to life without a full row of teeth now. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's just been that kind of weird week. And I will definitely update you guys onto the status of my COVID testing next week as well. Again, I'm vaccinated. I try to be careful. But, uh, I mean, it's just, it's not going away, is it, Seth? 
it's not going away. Not at all. But um, we're both out of the woods now. So that, that happened quite some time ago. My wife's, you know, got retested, came up negative, and, you know, we're out of the woods. Um, she's back at work. I go back to work next week. Um, and so we're, we're both fine now. Um, so, but, but it did mean that I was kind of like laid up for, you know, most of this past week, uh, watching a lot of Zeldathon Ascent. Uh, congratulations to our friends at Zeldathon who ended up raising over $175,730 for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. So that was really cool. Um, watched a ton of that. Yeah, um, and now they have topped three million lifetime in yes. terms of money raised for charity. So congratulations again to our friends at Zeldathon, our friend Super MC Gamer. Uh, well done, guys. Good job. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And then there's another huge charity event uh, actually starting tomorrow. AGDQ Awesome Games Done Quick 2022 is happening from the 9th to the 16th, benefiting the Prevent Cancer Foundation. So watch some uh, some awesome video game speed runs. I'm really looking forward to watching some of those. There's evidently going to be a Super Monkey Ball Banana Mania race where they're going to play through the entire story mode in like 48 minutes. <laughs> um, that's always, that's going to be insane. Apparently they're going to play through chicory in like 35 minutes. I don't know how. Why? But... That's <laughs> <laughs> Speed running a game like chicory is like missing the entire point of the game. Yeah. You got to, you got to skip all that pesky story and dialogue and character moments. Got to skip Ugh. all that. <laughs> but that's always fun to watch. Uh, and that's going on all week, benefiting the Prevent Cancer Foundation. So go into a good cause as always with stuff like this. Give if you can. And um, you know, we, we love supporting uh, charity events like this, and I can't wait to watch that. Um, so I was kind of laid up with that. Uh, I did get, actually just yesterday, Lego Luigi's Mansion stuff in the mail. Yes. So that was fun to put that together <laughs> and get my little poltergust and make my little Lego E-Gad and a, a couple Lego ghosts and take some pictures and fool around with that for a little bit. That was pretty fun. I haven't um, pulled the trigger on the Sonic set, right? No, I haven't done the Sonic set yet. I If I encounter it in the wild, I probably won't be able to leave it on the shelf. Um, but I didn't, like, specifically order the Sonic set. Like, I specifically ordered Luigi's Mansion. Um, so, I'll, I'll probably wind up picking up some of the other Luigi's Mansion set. I didn't buy all of them. I probably will wind up getting some more Luigi's Mansion stuff because it's just so cool. But uh, trying to be it's good. It's very cool. Trying to be good. Trying to illustrate some discipline and some restraint because Lego is an expensive rabbit hole to fall down. Um, and speaking of rabbit holes, again, kind of like you, I was kind of, I had a very specific itch. I was like, I'm laid up. I'm sick. I want to like get cozy with a good RPG. <laughs> and so I decided to, you know, when we first talked about bug fables early on in the show's life, like episode five. Um, you know, I was playing the game. I put like 10, 15 hours into it and unfortunately it just kind of slipped through the cracks. I never actually got to finish it. So I, I I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go back to bug fables. I've got the time now. I'm going to go back to it. And I restarted my save from the beginning. Cause I knew I was going to be lost if I jumped into my like 15 hour save. <laughs> um, so I just restarted the whole thing fresh and man, like, I am just blown away by how good that game is. Yeah. Like it is so good. I I'm prepared to say it. It is the best paper Mario game. Like straight up. I think it is better than thousand year door. I really do. 
Yeah, I 100% of that game back when we did the Indie Showcase on it, again, way, way back in the game's early lifespan. It's just so good. I mean, it's the perfect example of Nintendo refusing to do something and then the community just saying, fine, if you're not going to do it, we're going to do it. It very very much kind of felt like Sonic Mania in that regard. It's excellent. It's excellent. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. If you enjoy the original Paper Mario and Paper Mario, the Thousand Year Door, I guarantee you, you will absolutely fall in love with Bug Fables, the Everlasting Sapling. It is, it is phenomenal. Like it is genuinely one of those situations where I'm like, this is, this is going to be one of my, the best games that I've played indie games that I played on switch for sure. Um, it actually just went on sale. So it's like half off on the eShop right now. It is so worth the $12 and 49 cents they're asking for right now. Um, and long, I think they even added, yeah, I think they even added some free content after our indie showcase. Yeah, they did. Um, I don't know what like what the new content they've added like a bunch of side missions. I think even some post game yeah. content. Um, yeah. So I mean, it, it is so worth the price, man. Like, and it's like a long game. Like, I have a good twenty plus hours into this fresh playthrough, and I'm still not done with it. I mean, there's a lot to this game. It, it is phenomenal. I'm just I'm blown away by how good it is. Yeah. Um. So loving that. Um. One last thing, and a little bit of Nintendo. Um, I noticed that the Mass Effect trilogy was on sale on PS5 for half off, so I bought that. I love that trilogy. Um, and it was actually kind of a weirdly... The reason I'm shouting this out, it was a weird moment for me. Um, I, I've never told this story on the show before because I've never had a reason to because it's a Nintendo show. Um, I have played the first Mass Effect game over 20 times from start to finish. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I have every achievement for all three Mass Effect games on Xbox 360. And I have played that first game through over 20 times. I used to do it just as an activity. I can play through the first Mass Effect game in under eight hours if I want to. I know it that well. Um, And so anyway, it was kind of a weird moment for me when I started up this Mass Effect trilogy on PS5 and I started with the first game, which the first game, and this is a hot take, the first game is still my favorite in the whole trilogy. Um... I started up and I had this weird, like just the weight of the passage of time kind of hit me because like, it's now been almost 15 years since the first mass effect release in 2007. And there's just something about it. Like doing that first mission on Eden prime with this remastered trilogy, I was like, my God, like, I can't believe how much my life has changed. Like I just had this weird existential moment playing that game so it's been it's been like like kind of a weirdly emotional experience to replay that game but they've done a phenomenal job i hope they bring this trilogy to the switch because nintendo fans need to be able to play this trilogy it is phenomenal um it's very good there's there's still uh, the achievement that is mass effect has still never been uh replicated even close i mean it's 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 a phenomenal trilogy of games anyway that's enough out of me and what I've been up to this week. Plenty of stuff. No, 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 no. Oh, God. Not, oh, God. Not quite enough. Not quite enough, Seth. There was another thing that you've been doing that I need to ask you about. Oh, no. Okay. Seth, what in the world is Wordle? Oh, <laughs> oh Wordle. Oh, okay. 
Um, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Wordle is a daily um, online puzzle game. Uh, a word-based puzzle I'm seeing game. everybody posting about it on Twitter, and I'm like, what in the world are these green and yellow blocks? <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very simple game. Basically, the idea is that there is a daily word. It's universal. Everybody gets the same puzzle, the same word. And you essentially have to try to find out what that word is in six turns. And the way you do this is you guess the word, and it'll tell you if, the, if a letter in that word is like one of the ones that you guessed. Um, it'll tell you if it's in there. It'll tell you if you have it in the right position in the word. And it'll tell you if it's like in the word, but it's like in the wrong position. So my go-to starting word is like arise. Because you get like, you know, two vowels. You get R and S, or three vowels rather, and you get R and S in there as well. So anyway, I'll start out with arise. And then, you know, you'll see like the I is yellow. Meaning that the word has an I in it, but it's somewhere else in the word, you know. So anyway, it creates this really addictive kind of loop where... It's like this communal thing where everybody is like doing the same word and there's a really clear visual language like where you can see the blocks and you kind of see everybody's progression of how they got to the same word. And it just kind of creates this really addictive loop. I've, I've found myself like if I'm up past midnight, I'll jump on my computer and just do the day's wordle. Um, it's it's really good. I like it a lot. <laughs> it's got all those it checks all those boxes of like the things that just take like a totemic presence in my brain it just checks all the Seth brain boxes um, and yeah the, the whole internet is playing Wordle right now essentially I've got to admit from a marketing standpoint it is kind of genius because you can share your, your progress on Twitter the mm -hmm. thing is the way it does it is if you if you don't play Wordle it feels like you're looking at a code. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you want to fight to figure it out and see what exactly. It's about. Yeah. yeah. I'm seeing this. I'm like, what is this? And then other people are sharing it. I'm like, I, I feel like the only person, you know, it's the whole FOMO thing. I feel yeah. like I'm the only person who doesn't know what you people are talking about. And it's, it has admittedly because of that, you know, cryptography style marketing campaign, it has made me interested in trying it out. But just after seeing so many people posting about it on social media, I just had to ask him, like, what is that? <laughs> it's it's a very, it is just one of those games. It's just one of those, like, classic, it's like a Sudoku or a crossword. Yeah, I've said on the show before, I do the New York Times Daily Crossword and, and have for the past several years. And it, it just has that kind of, like, ritualistic, you know, you wake up, you have your morning coffee, you do the crossword, you do the wordle. You know, and, and again, that communal element of being able to share my my solve on Twitter and it is an, an instantly readable thing for other people who play Wordle. They're like, oh, like that's how he got there. And man, look at like how much trouble he had on that, how many letters he missed or, or whatever, you know. So it's really good. Like it's just a smartly designed little word game. <laughs> so, yes, I'm ensnared in Wordle's <laughs> trap. Uh, just like everybody else, but yeah, yeah. So you had to bring up Wordle, didn't you? You had to just you had to drag my addiction out for everybody to see. <laughs> I had to know. I had to know. Starting yes. to feel like a Da Vinci Code style puzzle to me. Like, what yeah. is it? It kind of is. If you be careful, if you try out Wordle, you you might get addicted. But um. Anyway, as evidenced, we have both been up to so much this week, but um, we do have we do have plenty of news to still talk about. So, what do you say we talk about it? 
Yes, it's our very first proper news segment of 2022. And they gave us some weird stuff to talk about, ladies and gentlemen. So let's talk about it. Hey, listen. So, um, so hey, Eric, NFTs. <laughs> it's just the thing that won't go away, I guess. It just feels like a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of business owners, a lot of people essentially with money are becoming kind of enraptured. They're becoming really attracted to this idea of NFTs because ironically enough, NFTs are are something that we spoke about, uh, not necessarily in this regard, but we spoke about the kind of what's going on with NFTs a while ago when we brought up a a documentary by Carl Jopes about the speculative bubble being created around collectible video games. Yeah. And that's kind of exactly what's going on here is instead of physical collectibles, for those who don't know, NFTs are supposedly digital collectibles with the value inherent apparently coming from the fact that, you know, just like in real world collectibles, how you have one thing right there that is hopefully part of a small series, NFTs are digitally scarce collectibles that apparently only have one or a few in existence across the entire internet. And the stupidest things are being sold as these digital collectibles, as these NFTs, as these non-fungible tokens. And for people who have money to invest in these, they are just, they're just seeing that they're being drawn in by the siren's call of being able to make more money. And all of us normal people here at the bottom are just like, this is one of the weirdest and frankly dumbest things that we've ever heard of. So, but apparently Square Enix and and Konami are going all in on this in 2022. Yeah, and they're and they're honestly just the latest to uh, to throw their hat into the NFT ring. I mean, you know, people like Ubisoft and EA have already kind of expressed interest in getting into this in the realm of video games. But yeah, just this past week, um, Square Enix president Yosuke Matsuda uh, issued a kind of like New Year's letter. To, uh, to fans, and in that letter, he illustrated the company's plans to embrace NFTs in the future, kind of saying like, hey, we want to create like user-generated NFTs and work this into your into your video games, and, and there was basically just a collective groan uh, in the fan base, just like, no, like, why? Like, why, why do this now? This isn't what we want. <laughs> well, I think the groan was more pronounced because... They specifically brought up, quote, gamers who play games for fun. Yeah, I do play games quote. for fun. That is true. Almost as if they're no longer going to be catering to people who play entertainment media for entertainment. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so that's where I think a, a big part of, you know, that collective groan that we were talking about was coming from. The fact that not only are they backing NFTs, but they seem to be consciously moving away from players who play games because they're games and moving into more of a market where they believe 
that players who play games for, uh, I guess, the sake of enhancing the market are going yeah. to be their new target audience in many respects. Like this, this entire thing honestly just feels like something out of the Twilight Zone. Like two years ago, this would have been an easy Onion article headline. Oh yeah, yeah, the, the, it's like a Black Mirror episode, <laughs> you know? Like it's just it's crazy. And and yeah, you mentioned Konami earlier. Th- this was a big kind of slap in the face for me. Um, we talked about just recently on the show how there mm-hmm. was no real rollout pomp or circumstance for the 35th anniversary of the Castlevania series. Well, now there is in the form of Castlevania 35th anniversary NFTs that Konami is introducing. Um, I, yeah, that that's how we celebrate Castlevania's 35th anniversary with NFTs that you can purchase. And another thing that just makes it just so ill-advised for me is the fact that this entire idea of NFTs for people who have jumped on board with it, it feels like just by simply being an NFT, people feel like you can charge a premium price for it. Right. Like this JPEG is now worth $1,500 because it's an NFT, because we've slapped that title on it, because we have a blockchain behind it proving that there's only one of it. And Oh, I'm sorry. What are you doing with that right click? Stop right clicking that. Stop <laughs> right click. Okay. Well, now it's all over the internet. But this, but this JPEG, <laughs> yeah, but this JPEG, despite the fact that there are thousands of them in folders all over the world now, this JPEG, this version of it is still worth $1,500 because of the blockchain behind it. That's the thing that gets me is why is that JPEG worth $1,500? And oh, by the way, why is it still worth $1,500 after so many people have copied it and added it to their own files on their own computer in the exact format and form that you're trying to sell this one to me in? You you own the original. It's an original piece of digital artwork. <laughs> And people are selling the craziest things as NFTs, like actual virtual JPEG girlfriends yeah. are being sold as NFTs for a premium price. And the the speculative bubble around NFTs is going to absolutely burst. And it's essentially just a game of hot potato right now. Yeah. Is all the people who are investing hard into NFTs, if you can't sell them quick enough to other people then eventually there's going to be a lot of people left with quote unquote tens of thousands of dollars worth of JPEGs that they literally can't give away. So if if NFTs is something that you're considering going into, ladies and gentlemen, it's disheartening for us to see so many major gaming companies get behind it. And I would honestly, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Seth would echo this sentiment, just be incredibly careful. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not one to tell you how to spend your money, but be very careful, y'all. Um, definitely be smart and um, and do what makes sense for you and do your research and uh, be very careful with the way you uh, you tackle this NFT thing. I, I don't like that it's bleeding into the world of video games, um, you know, but it is worth noting that not all companies are sold on the prospect of NFTs. 
Um, this is actually something that I wanted to bring up for a couple of reasons. There was this translated investors Q&A from Sega Sammy that came out this past week um, and was being reported on by a few different places. And one of the things in it was that Sega reportedly is actually thinking about reversing its stance on NFTs and not selling them based on, you know, the collective fan groaning that I referenced earlier. So uh, it is kind of... Um, it makes me feel kind of good that there are people like Sega who are like, maybe we should actually back out. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't try to sell premium collectibles within a digital landscape. You know, <laughs> something that can be hacked into, something that can lose power, something that can go down or be affected. You know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't do this. Like, <laughs> yeah. In my mind, there's just so many reasons why this is a bad idea. Now, I love the idea of video games as a collectibles market. And, of course, we've talked to quite a few people, uh, Barry Carinza, especially. We had a fantastic conversation with him about yeah. digital versus physical when it came to video games and the collectible nature that video games can have. And I am 1,000% down for video games uh, within the collectibles market. But NFTs, for so many reasons, I just do not feel like are the right way to pursue that. Yep. I agree. I agree. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's worrying, but we'll, we'll see where it all goes. It was definitely worth stopping and talking about. Um, another thing that I, that I wanted to stop and talk about related to this, uh, translated Sega Sammy, uh, investors Q and a is that mm -hmm. it's being reported that Sonic Frontiers was initially planned for release, uh, late last year, but was internally delayed for an additional year of polish. Um, the reason I wanted to bring this up is for a couple of things. Um, you know, this is a translated Q and a not officially coming down from Sega. They haven't released like an official statement or whatever. Um, but it was still kind of worth noting that. And obviously we're going to be talking way more about Sonic Frontiers and said polish later in the episode. So hopefully that hopefully that bodes well for uh, for Sonic Frontiers. But again, much more to say as we get into our top five later. Um, you know, I I kind of hope that there, there there's maybe some bad news coming out of E3 that I kind of hope isn't as bad as it sounds. Yeah, for the second year in a row, unfortunately, E3's in person event has been canceled due to. COVID-19, this one specifically because of all the variant surges all over the country. In a statement, the ESA said, quote, due to the ongoing health risks surrounding COVID-19 and its potential impact on the safety of exhibitors and attendees, E3 will not be held in person in 2022. We remain incredibly excited about the future of E3 and look forward to announcing more details soon, end quote. This is a really interesting one for a couple of reasons. Um, now, as, as we all know, as Nintendo fans, Nintendo hasn't presented physically at E3 in years. Like, yeah. I, I don't think they've presented physically at E3 since like 2014 or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, ultimately, uh, as far as Nintendo is concerned, I don't think that this is going to affect their plans very much at all. No, no. This won't affect the world of Nintendo whatsoever. However, what's interesting about this, they're, they're being very careful with their wording here. I do think that we're going to end up getting some sort of digital E3. But it's yeah. interesting that they didn't say that in their statement. They didn't specifically say, hey, but we are still doing a digital event. Look forward to that. They just kind of vaguely said, we remain excited about the future of E3 and more details soon. Now, IGN notates this 
when they reported on the story and they actually reached out to the ESA for confirmation. Like, hey, you guys have said that the in-person event has been canceled. Does this imply that there's going to be a digital event instead? And they refused to confirm that. So I find it really interesting. It seems like E3 might be on like shaky ground this year. I don't know. We'll see. E3, even before the pandemic started, the, the conversations of whether or not E3 was still even a viable venue for a lot of yeah. developers and publishers, that conversation was already being held because Nintendo was already having a ton of success with their Nintendo Direct style you know, marketing strategy. So uh, it was almost like, uh, as far as E3 specifically was concerned, uh, the global pandemic almost felt like a blessing in disguise for them for their uh, event specifically, just because it allowed them. It you know, I don't want to say allowed them, but basically forced them to move to a more digital form, uh, more digital centric format last year. Yeah. But yeah, the fact that they refused to confirm the existence of a digital E3 this year, I, I mean, I just feel like it, it's going to happen. I still feel like it's going to happen. It's just one of those things where E3 just exists. It's a thing. But then again, we thought that about Nintendo Minute as well. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we were like, oh, yeah, Nintendo Minute's gone. Yeah. So could it be a similar situation? It is kind of possible at this point, considering they're, again, refusing to acknowledge, refusing to confirm the existence of uh, plans for a digital E3. But, I mean, we'll see. What do you think, Seth? It, it kind of makes me feel like there's like scrambling behind the scenes on the ESA's part. Like it makes me, oh, like, oh man, this is all happening. We're going to have to cancel in person. Can we still pull off a digital event? Because obviously when it comes to actual production, that's a lot of, if you were already planning an in-person event, that's a lot of like plans that need to get shifted, conversations with publishers and developers that need to change, um, deals that need to be renegotiated and all the rest. So I, I kind of like, I, I kind of feel like there's a big shuffle happening behind the scenes and they're kind of like, we're not ready to confirm a digital event yet. Um, so I don't know. I still feel like it's going to happen, but it does kind of feel like the beginning of the end for E3. And as you mentioned, the writing has kind of been on the wall for this for a few years now. And I think really just the pandemic may have just been the final nail in the coffin for E3, sadly. And a lot of it's also the fault of the ESA. They haven't been protective of attendee and exhibitor information. They got hacked and all that stuff was released and people have not wanted to attend for that reason. So it just kind of feels like a one-two punch for E3. Um, and it makes me sad because E3 was a big deal for many, many years. And as the years go on, it becomes less and less of a big deal, especially as Nintendo fans. I mean, Nintendo Directs kind of changed the game for the way that people, that, that publishers and developers communicate with fans. Um, and they're like, hey, man, we draw more eyes to our E3 Nintendo Direct than we ever would if we were just taking, you know, spending all the money to be on your stage. We can just hold our own E3 Direct and draw millions of eyes, you know, so they, they can do yeah. it themselves. It's too bad that there's not another summer gaming event that could potentially come <laughs> in and take its place if yeah. E3 were to not happen. <laughs> it, within actual minutes. It was like Jeff Keighley was just sitting on this and waiting, like perched on on the ledge like a hawk, 
Um, within actual minutes of this announcement from the USA, Jeff Keighley announced that Summer Game Fest is returning this summer. And to be honest with you, this made me roll my eyes a little bit because I really didn't like how it just felt really messy last year. Like how everything, there, there were like a million different events going on at once. And I, I felt like the, the conversation was so muddled last year between Summer Game Fest and Day of the Devs and whatever the heck E3 was trying to do. It was like the, the conversation was so messy. Ubisoft Forward and EA Play and oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I was typically watching multiple streams at once just trying to keep up with as much of the information as I possibly could because, yeah, just like you said, Seth, and just like we talked about last year after it happened, yeah, like there was just this absolute information overload. It, it just felt like everybody thought they were the primary stream and a lot of the information, a lot of even announcements were getting lost in the shuffle because there was so much stuff going on. But maybe if they're not directly competing with E3 this year. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and again, I'm still operating under the assumption that E3 is still going to happen in some form or fashion. Me too. But uh, but if they don't have to really compete with E3, maybe they do it a couple weeks earlier so that they're not competing with E3 directly. If they learned a few lessons from last year, hopefully they did. Although considering... The way the game awards is, I don't know if Jeff yeah. Keeley. I don't know if they have learned any lessons, but I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully, at the very least, it's a more concise presentation. It's a more concise event. It's just more organization to it is all I want. I just want things to be in one place, you know, so that, like you said, watching multiple streams at once, it's a mess, dude. It was an absolute mess, and and like it, it just feels like it's going to be a mess again. So, I don't know. We'll see. E3 is still an exciting season. Um, lots of big announcements. And again, as it relates to the world of Nintendo, I don't expect things to change for Nintendo at all. They march to the beat of their own drum, and, and I hmm. think Nintendo's going to be fine. <laughs> now, I do think that if E3, if the ESA does actually come out and say there is, sorry, going to be zero E3, like an actual E3 event in 2022, yeah. honestly... I could still very easily see a lot of the developers and publishers coming together and saying, you know what, we're going to communally kind of create this week where we're just going to show off all the presentations. Because I promise you, you know, most of those developers and publishers are probably halfway through putting all that stuff together already anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's also just a really good time to announce that stuff. I mean, E3 yeah. is, you know, it's smack dab in the middle of the year. It's in early to mid-June, and that's just a great time to announce things coming into fall. So, I mean, it just kind of makes sense, regardless of the existence of an actual E3 or not. It just makes sense to announce your things for fall there. So, it would not surprise me at all if we just found this, if, if all these developers and publishers kind of had this silent agreement... We're just in the middle of June this year for a few days. There was just going to be this this extravaganza of mm -hmm. trailers and presentations and breakdowns and, and gameplay and streams going on. So, and that would be kind of heartwarming. I think that'd be pretty great. Yeah, we'll we'll see. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on the situation as it develops. I still have hopes, you know, and and we'll see what happens. But um, I, I'm preparing for another messy summer of news. <laughs> Uh, but another interesting story that kind of came across our desk was uh, not necessarily re uh, related to Nintendo on the face of it, 
But I don't know. Maybe maybe it could end up being a, uh, a Nintendo-related story. And there's definitely something to talk about here because it seems like as achievements and like full-on screenshots are thoroughly leaking themselves online, it seems like an Xbox port of the rare N64 FPS classic, GoldenEye 007, you ever heard of it, maybe once or twice, um, is basically an inevitability at this point. It's coming. Um, this follows the news that the game recently had its over two decades long sales ban lifted in Germany. So like this is coming. The question is, could it be coming to switch? I hope so. We're uh, about to get a rare game on the Nintendo Switch mm-hmm. here soon, hopefully. We know it's coming this month, but we haven't really heard anything beyond that yet. Uh, of course, we're talking about Banjo-Kazooie in that regard. I'm glad so you said have... that because now that you've said that, they'll announce it right before the episode goes live. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're probably right. That probably is exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. You're welcome, everybody. Cue future Seth now. <laughs> See, the thing about GoldenEye 007 is, yes, it was made by Rare, but the licensing rights for something like yeah. that are just so incredibly muddy and murky. The fact that it's getting re-released in general is frankly a, a minor miracle, but a lot of that is going to have to do with those licensing agreements. And I don't know if anybody has exclusivity. I don't know what types of agreements were made, but uh, we do have to prepare ourselves for the very real possibility. It might not come to Nintendo's hybrid platform. Yeah. This is a weird one because um, so the, the ban in Germany being lifted is a really interesting thing because they had a, a there was a stipulation where you could sort of reevaluate your game uh, after 25 years of the ban. And they actually specifically chose to reevaluate and pay to get the game reevaluated earlier. So they they had plans for Goldeneye being re-released in general. Um the, the big question here is this did require conversations from a lot of people. As you mentioned, the licensing with GoldenEye is, is legendarily messy. Um, Activision owns the 007 license. Nintendo owns that original N64 game. And then Xbox owns Rare. So you've got a bunch of different people, a bunch of different cooks in the kitchen, and all of them have to talk to each other to get this to work. And I almost wonder if this was something of a deal between like Nintendo and Microsoft where they were like, okay, like we'll put Banjo-Kazooie on NSO. If you let us put GoldenEye on Xbox live, you know? Um, and, and maybe there's a tit for tat there where switch can also get GoldenEye. I hope so. Um, I've, I've long said that that would be a massive deal for NSO. Just simply being able to play GoldenEye online would be a game changer for expansion pack that would sell expansion packs. So, who knows? Who knows what this could mean? It's not even officially announced yet, but I mean, um, it, it has been so thoroughly leaked. It's like, it is happening. It's just a question of when and if it's coming to Switch. And I hope it does, but they have actually re-released GoldenEye 007 before in the past, and and it was just kind of okay. Yeah, that was weird. They, they did that like 2010 remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, with like Daniel Craig, uh, yeah. which was weird, <laughs> and it was yeah, it was okay. Um, actually, uh, that was actually speaking of E3, that was an announcement at E3's 
uh, Nintendo's E3 conference that year. Uh, they they kind of touted that out like it was a Nintendo game. That was another stipulation of that agreement because um, it was like prolifically when it first came out a Wii and DS game. Uh, and it ended up getting ported to 360 and PS3, but I remember they released like a golden Wii Pro controller, and they they yeah. really kind of blew it out as the, a Nintendo for the golden game. gun. Yeah, I yeah. remember that. I forgot that it had a DS port, though. I forgot that was a thing. Yeah, so I mean, they uh, you know they they kind of touted that and rolled that out as if it was a uh, as if it were a a Wii you know a Nintendo exclusive thing that was part of that whole deal. So. I don't know, man. It's it's interesting. I'm I'm gonna be really curious to see kind of where this falls down, um, where the dust settles on this story. But it, I mean, it seems like the classic GoldenEye is going to be playable in some form, and and I I hope that Nintendo Switch fans get get a crack at that because while the game doesn't really hold up in 2021, I think it's still a big deal for a lot of people. You know what I hope. I don't know if this could be potentially worked into the agreement or maybe it already is pipe dream, but I'd be perfectly happy with PlayStation, Xbox, and even Steam users getting access to that because they don't have the N64 NSO. Yeah. So if they want to, if they want to have their remastered or whatever, I would actually be much more happy if, since they're doing this, if for Nintendo users, what they were able to do is just re-release that game yeah. on NSO. Just re-release the old N64 version. Yes, I know it hasn't aged very well, but honestly, I still think that that would be the version of the game I would prefer to play if given the opportunity. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it's looking like. I mean, just based on these screens and achievements and stuff, like it looks like the old game. So... I don't know. I mean, again, none of this is official yet, but it's definitely worth speculating on, and um, we'll definitely keep you guys updated if it does get announced for a Switch release. I, I certainly hope so. It's a classic. I mean, regardless of how it holds up today, it's a classic. Yeah. Just <laughs> more news about old, rare classics coming back to Nintendo. Please, just more and more news about that. I will take all of it. Thank you very much. Yeah, give me Blast Core, Jet Force Gemini, you know. I would love Blast Core. Of course, everything's going to be made about Diddy Kong Racing and, you know, Donkey Kong mm -hmm. Country Trilogy, and some, which we already have on Super Nintendo NSO. But, yeah, I would love if they re-released Blast Core. That was such a unique, interesting game. But uh, I'm going to get off on a tangent if we keep talking about Rare. Um <laughs> Actually, speaking of legendary developers, there's really no other place in the in the episode to really talk about this. But talking about old legendary developers from uh, from the Nintendo era, our friend Sam, the third strongest mole, just recently did a really cool blog post on one such developer treasure. So uh, go yes. check that out. Yes, we definitely are going to have to do like a, a treasure retrospective or something at some point. I actually think that treasure is celebrating their 30th anniversary this June. So maybe we'll have to circle back to that. Mayhaps. Maybe it'll give me a reason to, to try to track down Astro Boy Omega Factor again. Yes. But, uh, the last thing that we just want to talk about here is just the seed of what Seth and I are confident is going to wind up being something absolutely beautiful. Chicory was our number two game of 2021. It was a game that we frankly begged the developer Greg Lobanov to release on Nintendo's hybrid platform for most 
of the past year because <laughs> Wander Song is a game that we both adore. Greg, of course, was on the show talking about. So we're just huge, huge fans of Mr. Lobanov and the amazing work that uh, he and his team have been doing over there. And it turns out we didn't actually have to wait that long for confirmation of a new title because just this past week, just moments after we let uh, – the experience of Chicory finally settle in, we're already seeing actual assets from the next game that Greg and his team are working on. Yeah, Greg tweeted out a uh, a GIF <laughs> of the next game, which featured like this weird little, I don't know, like bipedal, fuzzy, kind of cockatiel slash raccoon looking thing. What it know, looks like is it looks like something from the Jim Henson uh, yeah, I can see that. It looks like something from Labyrinth or something from uh, uh, The Dark Crystal. But yeah, that, that's all he released is just this this gif of this character. But just even that, even confirmation of, hey, we already have a direction for what we're doing for our next game. Coming from a, a, from, coming from a very strong game of the year contender for most outlets... Yes, this is already very exciting news to see that they already are working on assets for their next project. Yeah, and it is the same team. Like he did say, um, in fact, the, I've got the tweet up right here. He says, quote, been waiting a long time to let everybody know I'm working on something new with the Chicory team. Smiley face. I can't wait to talk more about it. Hope to share details in 2022. Greg, if you want to come back on the show and share those details here, <laughs> we would be happy to have you. Hopefully we'll get to talk to Greg uh, at some point later this year. Um you know what this makes me think? And this is just pure speculation on my part, but I look at this creature and it kind of reminds me of like, do you remember Spore? Spore, yeah. that like PC yeah, yeah, yeah. Will Wright game. It kind of reminds me of like that kind of creature maker, like making a custom character sort of thing. I can see that. I can yeah. see that, yeah. Like taking parts of different animals and kind of making your own creature. I wonder if that's what we're looking at here. If Jim Henson did Spore, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, granted, yes, another big takeaway from this tweet is hope to say more in 2022. Yeah. So the 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 fact that they're the fact that there's a very strong possibility they won't be able to even tell us more until next year, until 2023. Yes, obviously, this game is still in its very early mm -hmm. stages. So this is not a game that we can expect to drop anytime soon. But yes, yeah, still knowing that they are already hard at work on the next title, especially after the amazing experiences that we've had with both Chicory and Wandersong, we will we will definitely be watching every little breadcrumb of news that comes out about this game and be reporting on it up until its uh, up until its eventual release. Yeah, it was about a three year gap between the release of Wandersong and Chicory, so I, I would expect at least that long. To be honest with you, very um, possible. So we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be an ongoing conversation. We're really looking forward to it. We love Greg and, and the work that he does. So can't wait to uh, have more to say about it. But in terms of recent releases on the Nintendo Switch, uh, you guys know we do try to shout out recent and very soon upcoming releases on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, notably released was the, the Dead Cells, the Queen and the Sea DLC expansion this past week. And... <laughs> I, I can't believe these games actually got put on the Nintendo Switch. <laughs> so, 
a couple like young childhood PC point and click adventures from many, many years ago. If you were if you were a child and played these when you were a kid, you might remember Freddy Fish and <laughs> yeah. Putt Putt Travels Through Time. Mm-hmm. Those both dropped this past week on the Nintendo Switch. Like that's like that's just crazy to me. That's like just putting that's like them putting number munchers or the Oregon Trail on the Nintendo Switch as far as I'm concerned. Like what some weird young childhood obscure titles to just throw on to a a major gaming console out of nowhere. That's so weird, man. These weird, like humongous entertainment games, there is something weirdly nostalgic to me about them. Like just even, I didn't play Putt Putt or Freddy Fish, but like I was very aware of them and just like seeing that artwork, like it's like games like that, Pajama Sam, Spy Fox, uh, the backyard sports games, you know, like they occupy this weird kind of like mid to late nineties space in, in like in all these games are like PC point and click adventures, educational usually, you know, for like a young audience. It's, it, there is something weirdly nostalgic. I just don't know why switch and why now on switch and what the audience is. <laughs> Next week, they're going to wind up releasing that PC space pinball table on the Nintendo Switch for a couple dollars. I'd buy it. I would buy it if they did that. <laughs> Genuinely, I'd buy it. I think I would too, <laughs> Space actually. Cadet? Oh, yeah. I'd be all over that. <laughs> but yeah, just just super notable just for how bizarre it was, frankly. But yeah, if you haven't checked those out, or if you have nostalgia for the Ozol titles, then you can now play them again on the Nintendo Switch. But obviously, there's a lot that we've been up to this past week. There's a lot that the industry has been up to this past week. What are all of your thoughts on everything going on? Let us know what you think about NFTs and the re-release of Freddy Fish. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. Join us. Join the conversation over on Discord. We'd love to have you over there. Check us out on YouTube.com slash All In Podcast, on Twitch.tv slash All In Podcast, and of course, the podcast itself. You can follow us, like, follow, subscribe over on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Podchaser. Also, make sure to what, Seth? Drop some words. Drop some words over on Podchaser, iTunes. You can also rate us over on Spotify. And as we've already proven, we will definitely shout you out if you do. But as always, guys, thank you for hanging out with us each and every Saturday and making us part of your weekly rotation. Namaste. Namaste. But actually, speaking of notable recent releases on the Nintendo Switch, last year in the Golden Aces, within the category of Best Puzzle Simulation, we nominated a game that had just been released. And we didn't really have too much time to really talk about it then. So we're going to remedy that right now. It's a new year. It's a brand new loop. So for our Indie Showcase, our first proper Indie Showcase of 2022, we're talking four-quarter teams, Loop Hero. Yeah, so Four Quarters, a little independent studio based out of Russia. Uh, Weirdly enough, I was doing some research about Loop Hero, and not only is Loop Hero 
currently, at, at least at the time of this recording, a Nintendo Switch console exclusive. It's on PC through a, you know, a bunch of different storefronts. But then console exclusive on Switch, so was their first game, Please Don't Touch Anything. I I won't, I promise. I I'm being careful. I swear, Seth. You you swear you swear what? Uh, I, I I promise not to touch anything. No, no, no. That's the name of the game. What is? Please don't touch anything. I, Seth, I told you I won't, okay? <laughs> I, I promise I'm going to be careful. I, I... <laughs> this, this, um, you know, th- this episode of Who's On First brought to you by All In. But uh- <laughs> <laughs> For all two people who are going to get that reference. No, but Please Don't Touch Anything is actually a kind of a bizarrely interesting game. If you haven't checked that one out on the Nintendo Switch, that's kind of like a demake almost of, of the Stanley Parable. Yeah, I, I'd never heard of it before, but doing research, yeah, please don't touch anything. Also a uh, Nintendo Switch console exclusive. So, I mean, the, you know, Four Quarters has a little bit of history with the Switch, and we were excited to get Loop Hero. I mean, this was a, a big deal. A lot of people raved about it. We started playing it, you know, when the game came out late last year. We liked it then, you know, already spending a little bit of time with it, thought it was worth nominating for the Golden Aces, as you mentioned. And um, as we've continued to spend time with it, turns out it's a pretty interesting little game. Yeah, there is a lot to this game. It is incredibly unique. It doesn't really neatly fit into any one genre, really. But what Loop Hero is, is it's the story of this young fighter who finds himself coming back essentially into existence after some unknowable force has completely removed, like turned everything to nothingness, essentially. So you have this young man who's going on these expeditions that are, I mean, just kind of slowly, I guess, remaking the universe or something. And as you're fighting these monsters, they are giving you shards essentially of reality. And these little shards of reality, these little resources, you wind up using too slowly, but surely kind of put the world back together. Like you do. It's it's just another one of those classic game scenarios. You know, I've seen it a million times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just one of those little uh, evil lich, you know, killing reality and erasing everything and you slowly building it together on a constant time loop. Uh, just one of those stories. Yeah, I mean, it's something we see several times a year, so it's nothing really u- unique or new. <laughs> But the, the way that the, the fighter goes about doing this is by going around in these massive loops, you know, as is the title, of course. But you have this character on a preset path. And as the character is walking this preset path, you continue to fight monsters. You know, a lot of the old classics show up like slimes and vampires and skeletons and stuff like that. And as you continue to fight these monsters, not only will they drop equipment, but they will drop uh, cards, essentially tiles. And that's, I mean, there's a lot really to this game, but the big crux of it, the big core element of it is the placement of these cards, the placement of these land tiles throughout the course of not just on the path, but off the path as well. Yeah, so, I mean, you will be gathering landscape tile cards, essentially, 
throughout the course of this game, throughout the course of your loop as you're defeating enemies. And you will, you, you've got your core pathway that is your loop that your character will automatically, you know, loop around and fight enemies on that pathway. But then on the outside, within, and even on the path itself, you can place these landscape cards that each have varying effects that either have like passive effects that will trigger between loops or they will have like spawn rates for enemies on the loop itself. It's, it's basically like this game is a roguelike deck building automatically sort of playing RPG with like resource managers. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts of this game. And one of the things that impresses me the most about it is that the game is actually really elegantly designed in the, in the way that it like conveys all of this information to the player. Cause hearing us describe it just on paper it sounds like it should be way more overwhelming than it ends up actually being. It's actually really simple. Once you yeah. see it in motion, once you actually start getting into the game itself, it is pretty, pretty easy to grasp hold on because ultimately what you're trying to do with each of the loop is to gain resources. And there are a bunch of different resources that you can get in the game. There's wood resources and rock resources, metal resources, even memory is a resource in this game. Even the act of metamorphosis is an actual resource in this game. And there are different things and different tiles that can help you get those different resources. But ultimately, that's going to be kind of the main purpose. Your main objective throughout most of your runs is to just try to gather as many resources as you can. Now, uh, like some of the tiles that you'll get access to are like forest tiles or mountain tiles, and you can place those anywhere around the path. And a lot of those uh, give you bonuses, like uh, giving you uh, extra health. The meadows and the rock and the the mountain tiles, as you continue to place them around, uh, continue to place them around the map, they will they will help you up by giving you. Uh, They will have healing effects and they will add to your max health, but also in placing them, they will give you wood and rock style resources. Yep. And there are other tiles that you can place directly on the path the main character walks, like cemeteries or groves, that every time you pass through those tiles, they will give you resources as well. Now, the trade-off is uh, new enemies spawn within those new environments as well. So that's the trade-off is the more tiles you're placing down, the more challenging you wind up making it for your player character as they continue to go in this never-ending loop. But you just have to continue to, to put down more tiles. You have to continue to put down more, to continue to build the world, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, and, and like any good, you know, deck building game, there's a lot of good synergies with the tiles that you can draw because it is worth noting that you are actually building a loadout, a deck of cards that the uh, enemies are dropping as you're progressing through. Like, you, you actually can control in some way the card that you draw, the cards that you're given are random, but the uh, the pool 
the deck that these cards are being drawn from is not. You can actually build that deck yourself and choose which synergies you're running to try to build towards or set up and, and put on your loop. There's actually quite a bit of depth and player choice in this game. Yeah, now, now don't go thinking you can just create like a one-card deck, be like, oh, I just no. need rock resources, so I'm just going to create this one-card deck and make sure every card, every uh, land tile I get is going to be mountains. No, you can't do that. The, the The decks that you create have to be between 7 and 12 cards. And, I mean, even just when it comes to placing the cards themselves... I mean, there's so, so much that goes into that because especially as you're learning what the different cards do, the different resources that you can get and the different monsters that you may have to face because you put these tiles down, placing the tiles, especially for the ones that you place on the path the character walks, the placement of the tiles is incredibly important. And... For a lot of the tiles, they do actually work off of other tiles. So they they don't just exist within this vacuum. Many of the tiles within the game can actually be directly affected by several other tiles. And sometimes those relationships aren't even expressly described to the player. One of the biggest examples of that is... The, the forest, the meadow cards that I was talking about, if you just place a bunch of those together, then they'll just all be, you know, what they are. But if you place them next to other tiles, it will change into an upgraded version, a more powerful version of itself. I can't tell you how many runs I did where I just grouped all those meadow tile cards together just yeah. to have, just because I would have that one part of the map that was like, okay, here's where all of these go. And then all of a sudden I realized that if I started, you know, thinking a little bit more about and planning this stuff out, how much more effect of an effect I could get from these individual tiles. And there's actually a lot of really interesting effects that you can get. Like uh, there's one with the rocks, right, Seth? Yeah. So, yeah, there's an interesting thing where the the rocks base on the um, the adjacent tiles of other rocks or mountains that are next to them. When you group them all together, it'll actually become like one big sort of mountain range that will then give you a burst of resources. So that's kind of interesting to kind of play that into your strategy. You get other tiles like beacons that will double up on resources when tiles are placed next to them. Um, there are things that you can place inside of the loop, which can also affect things that happen on the loop. Um, there's again, there's a lot to consider. And one of the things that's really interesting about this game that we haven't really touched on yet is that the action happening on the loop actually is occurring independent of the player. Meaning that you are actually going on this loop automatically and combat is happening automatically. Um, the character acts in this way basically on their own. You can stop and plan um, by pressing the Y button and you can like kind of, you know, either engage or disengage that action. But the action is happening without your direct input. Yeah, the reason we nominated Loop Hero within the realm of best puzzle simulation game was the fact that, as we kind of briefly said during the Golden Aces, you have no direct control over the player in combat, and you have no direct control over the directional inputs of mm -hmm. the main character. All of that is handled by the computer. Like Seth just said, you can tell it to stop for a second, 
so that you can, you know, go into plan, you can place land tiles or do a few other things, but you can't actually control where the player goes or what attacks they do. Yeah. But the, you know, the, the big distinction too, I mean, outside of, it's kind of a good thing that you don't, because I feel like that would actually be a little overwhelming if you had to, in addition to everything else you're constantly doing, laying down, you know, land tiles and stuff like this and trying to plan all of this out. If you had to also worry about like combat strategy and maneuvers, I think it would actually be a little too much. I think it's actually kind of smart that this happens automatically. With that being said, we mentioned earlier that enemies will also be dropping equipment constantly. Um, this does feed into your stats and, you know, you have to manage things like your attack and your defense and, you know, things like your evasion chance, your health regeneration, vampirism, delicious <laughs> vampirism, and many other attributes. Yeah, the equipment that you put on the main character is something that you directly control. And just like the land tiles, just like the land cards that you place around the, the map, you will constantly be getting new equipment from defeating enemies or, you know, through several other means. And depending on which loop you're on, depending on how many times you've completed a loop, you will continue to get access to more powerful pieces of equipment in order to keep up with the ever-increasing power of the monsters. Because every time you create a new loop, the monsters themselves go up one level. There's actually a rolling loop level as you're increasing in loops, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So it's not just the same thing going on. Once you've completed an entire loop of the map, all the monsters will increase in HP and they'll increase in the damage that they do as well. So you've got to continually collect more powerful equipment from these monsters in order to stay up to date with them. And just in addition to the core stat effects that they're going to have, uh, damage from you know 20 to 30 per hit or a defense of 17, what have you. You do have several other uh, you do have several other effects that you can stack on your character as well, very similar to most RPGs. Now the the pieces of equipment themselves, there's actually four levels of rarity. You have gray, blue, yellow, and like a red. I think it's red. Yeah, kind of like a red-orangish kind of thing, yeah. But that's not necessarily... One thing that I had to learn is that's not necessarily denoting the power of the stat effect. Right. The rarity actually specifically has to do with how many different effects that piece of equipment has. So a gray piece of equipment only affects a single stat. A blue piece of equipment will affect two stats... Yellow will affect three, and red will affect four different ability stats. Like evasion, like uh, regeneration, like vampirism, like Seth said. So there's a lot of different things that any piece of equipment could augment. But again, that doesn't mean just because it's affecting multiple stats that it's affecting them to a great degree. You could very easily find a gray piece of equipment that could be much better than the red one that you put on a couple loops ago. So oh, yeah. don't just automatically, oh, I see red, equip that. Do not just do that. No, You have to be yeah. very cognizant of everything that you're putting on. Because after you finish two or three loops with all the different equipment that you're going to be getting, it can start to become a little bit of a, a Sophie's choice 
on which oh, one yeah. you're actually going to throw on your character. Like, this one's got more attack, but it's got less of this. Oh, man, this shield doesn't have nearly as much evasion, but it's so much more powerful in this regard. So just be careful to start making a lot of those choices. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's all based on the way you want to actually build your character. Um, and I mean, there have been many, many times, like I mentioned vampirism earlier, which is my like preferred play style. Um, their vampirism essentially is like lifesteal, like life on yeah. hit. So the things that I like to build towards is a focus on like my attack speed so that I can hit more often so that, you know, if I'm hitting more often, that means I'm getting life more often. Right. And then building that vampirism percentage also means that I'm getting back more of the percentage of damage that I'm dealing back as health. So I'm building into those and I'm focusing on that with my equipment but I might run into a piece of equipment that gives me way more defense or way more attack or some other attribute that could be valuable, but it's like, oh, like, do I want to trade what I've been building towards for this? You know, so it does become a game of choices. I mean, it, it, the entire game is about making these split second decisions, even though there's no real like timing element, like you can pause and make these decisions as, as, as much as you want, but it, it does become a game of constant decision making. So it, it may take you a few runs to to really start to feel comfortable with what you're doing in yeah. this game. I know for me, it certainly took me like I'm still honestly trying to get more comfortable with the game, even as many runs as I've done, just trying to figure out how best to to space out the different tiles, how best to 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 really lay out my maps as I'm getting the tiles, even though it's random. You'll, you'll right. get the tiles and you'll get equipment at a random pace. But, you know, just kind of having a strategy and a set pattern in mind when you're going into, I'm still kind of working on that because again, there is so much that you can do. I mean, even in, just in addition to, you don't even need to lay tiles down when you get them. No, there is, it is entirely possible that you can have a winning strategy that requires that you hold on to those land tiles. You hold on to a few of those land tiles for quite some time. Uh, Another reason for that being, if you wind up holding on to a bunch of equipment or holding on to a bunch of land tiles, once you start getting extra of those, those can actually start to give you different types of resources themselves. So there's an actual tangible benefit to doing that uh, anyway, even outside of you know the strategic purposes. That's a way with both the equipment and the land tiles by getting by stockpiling so many of them that you wind up getting extras and those extras turn into resources. So yeah, there, there's just so much going on within this game that again sounds really overwhelming the way we're talking about it, but becomes just like everything clicks very quickly in terms of what you need to do once you start playing. Now, the strategies you're going to need to employ may take you a while to understand and put together, but the actual purpose, your goal within the game is fairly straightforward. Yeah, I mean, it is ultimately all about gathering those resources, you know, from from run to run. And there is, I mean, there's a lot to learn here. It's not, you know, it, it's very on the face about it, about what you have to do and how you have to do it. But, you know, the actual strategy is something you're going to have to figure out as a player and find out what you like, what you're comfortable with, and kind of learn things as you go. Um, one thing we should say is that, as you're progressing, you, you actually have a couple of ways to sort of like cash in on the resources that you've gathered. Yep. Um, uh, 
you can actually retreat at any point, even in mid-battle, you can retreat at the cost of losing 70% of your resources. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is a big chunk, and this also happens, the same amount is lost uh, if you are actually defeated in combat, um, or if you make it all the way back to your base camp at the you know beginning slash end of a loop, you can retreat without losing any of that. So there's a risk-reward factor there. Do you want to continue on with the next loop and risk losing 70% of your resources, or do you want to just go ahead and book it back to the base camp and keep everything you've earned so far, you know? Yeah, once you've placed enough tiles and once there's enough monsters populating the path that you're walking on, I mean, yes, that's a lot of equipment. That's a lot of potential resources mm -hmm. and even more so each loop that you run around. But yeah, every time you get back to that base camp, you got to kind of look at everything and say, do I want to risk another path? Because mm -hmm. losing 70% of everything you've gained in that run is a big loss. Yes. So it's not just something to where you're like, well, you know, I can go for it, whatever. I'm not going to lose that much if I die anyway. No, in this game, you are going to lose quite a bit if you decide to to take a chance and it doesn't pan out for you. So be very careful with this game. This game doesn't mess around in that regard. And you can wind up finding yourself having to do dozens of, of runs just to get the resources you need in order to build the next thing. Speaking of the next thing, we've talked about getting resources and resource management and all this stuff, but we haven't even talked about what you actually do with those. Yeah. I mean, like any good roguelike, there has to be a carrot on a stick, right? Yeah. And unlike a lot of them, this one actually kind of skews more toward Hades in the realm of being able to constantly unlock permanent bonuses for your character. Because... Going along with the whole theme of kind of rebuilding this world, in between each run, your character goes back to this human village settlement. And using the resources that you have gathered on your runs, you can continue to build new uh, uh, new buildings and new you know sites and new compounds with all these resources that you've created. Things like gymnasiums and farms, libraries, even crypts all kinds of different things. And every time you build one, that gives you a new permanent boost or a new permanent ability or a new permanent stat increase. So those, you know, that's kind of the big, ultimately that's the big loop we're talking about here is going through the runs to collect the resources in order to come back to the village and continue to build the village up, continue to build new facilities that will increase your abilities. And even the facilities themselves, many of them can be upgraded even after they've been built. So you can continue to enhance your abilities like that. Yeah. And this can, I mean, this can include things from permanent stat upgrades to items and little bonuses that you can take onto your, you know, to your run with you. Um, it could affect the way that you begin your runs, give you a little bit of a boost right there at the beginning. It could even unlock new player classes. Uh, to play as so there's there's quite a bit of incentive to gather the maximum amount of resources to then bring back to your base build these new establishments these new settlements and um and and get yourself those bonuses that's the whole impetus behind it all yeah but probably the most important thing that you're going to constantly unlock throughout the course of the game are new tiles are new land yeah. cards 
you start with a relatively small amount, but you'll wind up getting access to all kinds of new and interesting new land cards that have some really interesting effects. You start off like what we said were meadows and rocks and mountains and stuff, but you can you can get access to like swamps and even you can even put actual villages on mm -hmm. the path and those will heal you for HP and they will, you know, they'll have actually some really interesting, unique game changing effects within the loop as well. You can unlock rivers and you'll wind up unlocking quite a few, quite a few really interesting game changing effect tile cards to the point where it may be a challenge putting your deck together by the end of it. Uh, actually, but in terms of putting your deck together, one of the nice, one of the really cool detail centric things that I like this game does, uh, that I like that this game does is that it allows you to save up to four separate decks. Yes, that is nice. So that's a really nice small thing that this game does because after you've unlocked enough cards, you won't want to just go through every time and be like, oh, well, let me use this one, this one, and this one. And you have to change it up every time. It actually lets you save four unique decks. So if you just want to say, well, this time I'm more trying to do this. I'm more going after this resource. So let me use this deck. So that's one of the nice detail-centric things that I like that Loop Hero does. Yeah. And another thing we should say is that it isn't just, you know, going from loop to loop, raising your level, getting resources, fighting enemies. There is actually a meter that will fill slowly as you progress, as you continue to place tiles and as you continue to, you know, progress in, in loop level. And once that meter fills, you will face a boss fight. Um, yeah. And this is kind of where story progression comes in. The game's broken up into four different chapters and kind of the, the idea is that each chapter will increase like the resources you get, increase the difficulty. Each each chapter increase will have like some sort of effect on your loop at large. Everything in this game affects your run. Um, and, and yeah, so this all kind of culminates into boss fights uh, in each given chapter, which is interesting. And fighting and defeating these bosses will help unravel the mystery around what happened to the world and why these great, powerful creatures did this to you and everyone that you love. Um, and I mean, this is just one of those games that it, it won't be for everybody. And some people are definitely going to take to it much easier than others. Cough, cough, cough. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was in like my 16th, 17th run just trying to just honestly still trying to figure this game out and still just gathering resources. Seth comes in literally Seth's second run. He beats the first chapter boss. Yeah. It, and I'm like, uh, what? Huh? What? <laughs> huh? Yeah, I don't know. I, I got really lucky with my drops. I built into vampirism and yeah, it was a close fight. And I did end my run after beating the first chapter boss. But yeah, I I was like, oh, I guess this is a boss. I was like, I guess the this lich guy is the boss. And, um, you know, completed chapter one on only my second run. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, some people are clearly going to take to this game a little bit easier than others. But I mean, ultimately, if you like games like this, it's kind of, I mean, it's it's so weird. It's almost like, Final Fantasy meets Lemmings. It's almost like, you know, Act Razor meets Catan. It's it's a really unique style game. And it may take you a while 
because you know gathering these resources is going to take you a while. It's going to take you quite a few loops. It's going to take you yeah. quite a few runs to gather enough resources to honestly even build up one of these structures. This is not going to be something to where after every one you're going to be able to build several new buildings. No, right. that's not going to be it. You're probably going to have to do several runs just to be able to get one building. So this is ultimately going to be a bit of a time sink. And that actually leads me into uh, another thing that I like this game does is it allows you to increase the the speed at which the game itself is played. Something that I would highly recommend. Uh, my default speed that I play the game at now is three times speed. Mine too. Yeah. So that is something if you do choose to play the game, I would very highly recommend increasing the game speed because especially after you're, you've done a few loops and you get more comfortable with how the game works, then the normal game speed is just going to wind up being way too slow for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it even, you know, it, it's got a lot of ac- actually um, nice accessibility options there in the options menu. Um, there's a cute little like CRT mode because the, <laughs> there is a CRT filter. That is so cool. <laughs> the, the game's got a very kind of like retro aesthetic, you know, the it, it has this kind of like Dark Souls, dark brooding fantasy um, overtone to the entire thing, kind of gothic overtone a little bit. Um but but you know when you're actually looking at the sprite work on the screen like it kind of looks like honestly like like little commodore 64 you know yeah. sprites running around <laughs> the um, game looks like if bloodborne were on the odyssey <laughs> yeah which is it's really charming so it's it's kind of cute that they have that option in there there's also um some things to make the the player character and the monsters stand out more on the loop there's um a apparently a dyslexic friendly font style that you can trigger so that's pretty cool a lot of yeah cool there's options. a couple yeah there's a couple different fonts in the game there's an hd font that really helps with readability but yeah i i honestly wasn't even aware there was there were dyslexia friendly fonts Me i honestly didn't yeah. know that was a thing so but that's in the game as well if that's something that you were a loved one deal with and you're trying to get into it but yeah there's you know like like we say with many of the games that we very highly praise uh, just like this and with uh, Chicory and with Into the Breach and many other games like this, there are a ton of really cool, really interesting options. Not even just accessibility options because we mentioned the CRT thing, but just a bunch of really cool, fun, interesting options that you can use to tailor the game to the way you want to play it. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that about the game. And again, as you kind of touched on, the game's not going to be for everybody. Um, I think it's really interesting, definitely worth playing. With all of this being said, I mean, obviously we're recommending the game. <laughs> you know, it, there's a lot of nice things to say about this game. However, are you, are you doing it? Are you doing it? Well, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> the game has got a few little weird issues. Um, the way that this game switch icon looks uh, <laughs> i'm sorry i know it's petty it drives me insane if anybody from devolver digital or four quarters is listening i beseech thee please fix the switch icon it drives me nuts it's like two pixels cropped upwards so there's like a thin white line at the bottom of it dry i i can't stand to look at it it drives me nuts <laughs> um so there's that but you also have like a really weird glitch that you encountered yeah, so I think the game just kind of took pity on me because <laughs> because since Seth, you know, is apparently this this god gamer, 
low-key <laughs> god gamer, yeah. <laughs> After Seth had passed the first chapter on literally just his second run, somehow the game glitched. And even though I hadn't beaten the game's first chapter, the game's first boss, which is uh, a, a really cool-looking little Lich King, yeah. For some reason, I was still given access to the second chapter. I hadn't beaten the first boss yet, but for some reason, I could still play the second chapter. So ran into a weird little glitch with that. I hope it doesn't cause any permanent issues with uh, with my save file. But, I mean, aside from that, the only thing that I can really say against the game is I do think the resource management is a little weird. It's like an right. extra unnecessary step. Because the resources that you get are, you get like wood and and rock and metal resources like we've mentioned, but these primary form resources turn into bigger form resources once you've collected enough of them. Like once you've collected, I think it's uh, 20 some odd branches, the wood wood resource, it turns into like a log, like the core wood resource mm-hmm. that you're actually going to use to build up new facilities and, and to enhance those facilities. I just think it's kind of weird just because that extra unnecessary step doesn't need to be there. Like, why not just have one wood resource, but it just require you to use more? I don't know. It's, right. it's a it's a nitpicky thing, admittedly. Yeah. But I did think that that was just a weird design choice. Yeah. A couple little weird things like that. I mean, again, overall... I think still very recommendable. There's a reason that we nominated the game for best puzzle simulation. There's a reason the game has been getting as much hype and pomp and circumstance. It's it's a really, really clever system that makes a super deep, heady game concept something that is actually palatable. I really wish the game had a demo that we could point you guys towards because this is a game that really we can sit here and talk about it all day long, but until you play it, I think it's really kind of hard to grasp just how elegant all this stuff works together. (laughs) And some people, not us, not myself or Seth, but some people have apparently uh, had addiction problems with the game as well. They have found the the one more run thing become very addictive for them. That's not something that I've ever dealt with. I thought it was always a really cool thing every day. Just come in, do you know, a couple runs and just try to get as many resources as you can. If I get enough to build a new facility, cool. Then I'll have that for the next time I turn it on. But I never, I personally never ran into a situation where I was just losing seven, eight, nine hours at a time playing this game because I was constantly needing to do one more run to get enough resources. Yeah, this this one hasn't hooked me in the way that like a Spelunky hooked me or Slay the Spire or something where it's like, oh, there goes 100 hours of my life or yeah. anything like that. But it's still just a really well-made game that, you know, I think, it, like you said, it's kind of the thing. I just like to pop in there do a quick run or whatever, get a few, you know, kind of inch my way towards being able to build something new in my settlement. And it's just kind of a satisfying little thing. And what's really nice about the game too, um, if I can compliment it one last time, is it's really easy to drop in and out. You can actually just quit out the game whenever you want and pick back up exactly where you were, even in mid-combat. So I find that really nice. Yeah. Just to throw one more comparison at Into the Breach, just because of the low level memory that this game's going to be taking up. It is very similar yeah. to into the breach. It is incredibly snappy. So you're going to be navigating these menus very, very quickly. So, but <laughs> one last thing about the game though, in terms of navigation, it was pretty clear that this was made for PC. So mm-hmm. 
Uh, the cursor, the, you do have multiple ways to move the cursor in the game. You can either move it with the joystick or even with the D-pad. It'll, it'll uh, jump over panel to panel if you use the D-pad. So depending on how you want to use it, I use the Pro Controller with the game, and I thought it felt perfectly fine. I know you said you felt a, you thought it felt a little weird, Seth. Yeah, there, there's a couple. There's been a couple little moments where I thought it was maybe a little bit janky, um, but I think it works as well as you could expect it to. Um, you know, it, it, again, the game was cre- clearly developed first for PC. It's a lot of cursor-based movement, um, but I didn't find it like inelegant or bad or anything like that. I think it's perfectly playable the way it is. Yeah, but what about you guys? Have you checked out the Golden Ace-nominated Loop Hero? Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, join the conversation over on Discord, and tell us what you thought about Four Quarter Team's really interesting genre-bending. Is it an RPG? Is it a simulation game? Yes, just please fix that icon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so so I can stop hearing about it, please. And well, that does it for our very first indie showcase of 2022. Uh, You know what, Seth? I still can't even really believe that we're here in 2022. We're in the future. Right? No, it's still kind of hard to believe. But I mean, just being here in 2022, it does get me so excited about all the games that are going to be releasing this year. Obviously, we are going to be talking ad nauseum for the next 12 months about Mario Rabbids, Sparks of Hope, about Pokemon Legends Arceus, about so many of these amazing games we know we're going to be getting our hands on soon. And as optimistic as we are about many of them, admittedly, there is one big kind of question mark for us when it comes to 2022's main switch releases and that is sonic frontiers now sonic was just in the news this past week of course when it was noted that for sonic's 30th anniversary sonic frontiers was actually planned to release however they pushed it back to 2022 and hopefully that's a good sign But there's a few other really good signs that we very much hope to see from Sonic Team leading into the release of Sonic's next 3D adventure. And we're going to count down the top five for you right now. Yeah, so one of the things that we have said basically since the reveal of what is now known as Sonic Frontiers uh, back during the Sonic's 30th anniversary symphony, the amazing Sonic's 30th anniversary symphony uh, that happened last May. Um, When that was revealed, we were kind of like, okay, this is really cool, but we've been hurt before. And that was one of the major points you made is like, we're really excited about this. This looks really interesting. And we've seen more about the game since then, but we, we have to kind of temper our expectations. And I think in traditional all in fashion to kind of bring an air of positivity to it, to kind of like look optimistically, cautiously optimistic, but to still be optimistic and be like, hey, these are the things we would love to see them kind of right the ship with, with Sonic Frontiers. Absolutely. Uh, cautiously optimistic is kind of the best phraseology to use when talking about this game as far as I'm concerned, just because... You know, there's been some very famous face plants for the blue blur over Mm -hmm. the past 15, 20, 25 years. And that's not what we want. Like, I'm still a I'm still a huge, huge Sonic fan. I still think of Sonic and I think of all those games that I used to love to play. And I want to be able to feel that again. 
And there's five really core things that we think that Sonic Team can finally do, not just to right the ship, but to potentially even make Sonic Frontiers one of the premier games of 2022. Yes, and to start off our list at number five, um, one of the things that we would really love to see taken seriously and done well with Sonic Frontiers is the story and the soundtrack. Um, This is going to be, I think, a big make-or-break thing for this game, especially when you consider that Ian Flynn is attached as the lead writer on the project. Uh, Ian Flynn, of course, being the writer of the long-running Sonic the Hedgehog, IDW, and Archie comic series. Um, His writing has meant a great deal to Sonic fans for a while now. People swear by those comics. So his attachment to the project is exciting. And I think the story is going to really matter with Sonic Frontiers. I'm really hoping because, you know, obviously when it comes to Sonic games, the story is not necessarily a core part of the experience a lot of the time. A lot of the time, it basically just evolves into Eggman is doing a thing. Sonic goes to stop Eggman from doing said thing. And there's a couple plot beats in there just to get us from A to B. But there have been some pretty ridiculous missteps with the narrative and with the characterization, in my opinion, over the fa- uh, over the past 20 or so years. Very famously, Sonic's romance with a human character was <laughs> painfully bizarre. Yeah. Uh, I really didn't like Knuckles' big dumb oaf characterization from the Sonic Boom IP. And, you know, there's there's other little things here and there. But with Ian Flynn attached, we are hoping that, you know, a, a good story like we've like we've talked about even here recently on the show, a good story can really bring a game together. Our number four game of 2021 was Life is Strange True Colors, an almost exclusively narrative style experience. Now, we're not saying that we expect Sonic Frontiers to be on the same level as Life is Strange when it comes to the narrative aspect, but with such a notable name attached to writing this game, that is definitely something that we would like to see. That is definitely a focus for this team going into Sonic Frontiers, so we're really hoping that that winds up paying off. Yeah, and we do know a few things about the story. We know the kind of like general story setup um, being on this place called Starfall Islands. Um, The game is called Sonic Frontiers after all, so it's going to have various landscapes and islands and, well, frontiers. Um, According to the website here, it says, quote, landscapes brimming with dense forests, overflowing waterfalls, sizzling deserts, and more, end quote. And we do know that several of the classic um, voice cast is also returning. Uh, we know that Roger Craig Smith, of course, is returning as the Blue Blur himself. Um, we know that Colleen's coming back as Tails, um, who is yes. also going to be in the Sonic 2 movie, which is really cool. Um, yes! We know that Mike Pollock is back as Eggman, of course, and the voice actress for Amy Rose, Cindy Robinson, um, is apparently coming back as uh, Amy in this game. And this was kind of like confirmed by the uh, by the the casting director of the game um, on a live stream, and we kind of hear Amy's voice even in the trailer, uh, in this recent trailer, kind of like this ethereal 
Amy voice. So it does seem like we're going to be getting a pretty stacked cast of Sonic characters in this game's story, if nothing else. Um, despite the fact that we've only actually seen Sonic, it does seem like we're going to be getting like a- an actual cast for this game. And obviously, the more Sonic characters you add into something, the more character dynamics and the more narrative opportunities you have. So, uh, again, just hope Ian takes full advantage of that. Obviously, writing for a video game is going to be quite different than writing for a comic book. But there have been, you know, there has been success when moving from the page to the screen uh, with other franchises in that regard. So, Really hoping on that. I'm hoping on that too. And I think too, um, just to touch on the soundtrack potential, we have heard a little bit of music for this game in the most recent trailer. And it sounds good, but I think one thing that's going to be really important to this game when it comes to the music is making these different frontiers, these different landscapes in the Starfall Islands feel unique and sound unique and have their own kind of aesthetic, their own vibe. I think that's going to be a big deal. Sonic has had a fairly good track record uh, with its music, but I, you know, I would love to see you know, I, w- I would love to see this game really knock it out of the park with the soundtrack. We do have uh, one of the Crush 40 folks who has been a longtime um, uh, composer on modern Sonic games. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, returning to to the score, I, I would love to see like, you know, it'd be really cool if they got T-Lopes back to do some music for the game. Yeah. yeah. I would love to see that. And actually speaking of T-Lopes... For our number four, in terms of things that we would love to see from Sonic Frontiers, honestly, the return of past collaborators. Because Sonic has always had an incredibly loyal fan community. That's the reason that they keep making Sonic games, is because people keep playing them. They keep wanting to get those those classically good type of experiences. Sonic games are always going to sell. They're always going to make money. It's just been a quality issue for so long. But still, there are so many incredibly passionate fans out there, so many incredibly talented and passionate fans out there, that when Sega decided to straight up hire a couple of them, it wound up resulting in the greatest Sonic game since the Genesis. Of course, I'm talking about Sonic Mania from Christian Whitehead and Head Cannon Studios. Granted, yes, 3D Sonic wasn't really his realm, but maybe bringing back T-Lopes and Christian Whitehead and some of those past collaborators, some of those past passionate, talented fans, maybe they can help put 3D Sonic finally over the top. I hope so. And I think that Sega and Sonic Team have been much more willing to work with kind of these prolific fan creators. Uh, Another name that comes to mind is Tyson Hesse, um, who was made famous as doing the artwork for those Archie comics. And he's been working with Sega on a professional basis for quite some time now. He was the one who did the redesign, the famous redesign for Sonic in the live action movie. And he's returning for the sequel for that as well. Um, So, you know, I think you look at some of these names, Tyson Hesse, Christian Whitehead, Ian Flynn, you know, uh, T. Lopes, a lot of these people haven't been officially attached to the project, but it would be so nice to see this kind of be like an all hands on deck experience. Let's get all of these diehard fans, these people who understand Sonic, the character, the property, and let's really make Sonic Frontiers something special. That's just, that's all we've wanted for so long. 
It's just all we've wanted forever. Sonic has been proven. I mean, you can make a good 3D Sonic game. Sonic Adventure, Sonic Adventure 2 were both really good. Sonic Colors, they're fixing the they're fixing the, the, the re-release currently. But Sonic Colors back on the Wii, I thought was an incredibly solid title. And Final Boss notwithstanding, I thought Sonic Generations was also a similarly great experience. They just need to take all of that and put it together. There have been glimpses and even fairly consistent glimpses that 3D Sonic games can be really, really good. And you have people in your community, fans that Sega has employed before, and an ever-growing list of incredibly talented people within the fan community that can help you get Sonic to where he needs to be in 2022. Yeah, I would love to see that. I, I would love to see them just like really involve all these fans and and just really blow this thing up. Let's make it a celebration, man. It's an extension of the 30th anniversary after all. And going into our number three in terms of things that we would love to see from Sonic Frontiers, we would finally love to see them really nail down a satisfying combat engine for Sonic because there's going to be enemy encounters. They've already talked about enemy encounters about Sonic, what is it, quote battling great monsters or something on the on the website? Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, on the website it says battle powerful enemies. So Yeah. And we didn't even need the website to know that Sonic was going to be in some type of combat situation in this game. But combat in Sonic games has always been kind of weird. They made it a real focal point of Sonic Unleashed. The problem was, is those combat encounters grinded the pace of the game down to an absolute halt. So what I think you do with Sonic and combat is you give it a fast, fluid, uh, you know, almost rhythmic pattern to it. Don't be afraid to take away from other... Uh, games that have done incredible combat systems really well. I think something like the Batman Arkham thing could work if you sonic it a little bit. Just something that feels fluid, something that feels smooth, but something that also feels fast. You don't want the combat in Sonic to to take minutes on end. You know, you can have several several enemies there and maybe build up a counter, uh, a combo counter to where once you get high enough, you can do some ultimate speed move that immediately defeats all the enemies, all the other enemies around you. And that, that could even be the whole point behind the combat is essentially just getting up to that combo counter to where you can just knock out all the enemies at once in this big, incredibly satisfying burst of speed. But They've never really been able to nail the true combat of Sonic down, in my opinion. Enemies, at the best of times, have basically just served as QTEs, as button prompts in Sonic speed sections. But if you're going to have enemies, if you're going to have combat, let's really nail down a good, satisfying combat system for the blue blur. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody wants to see Sonic with a sword again. Um, or anything like that, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I oh, think those that... storybook games. <laughs> but I do think that um, when it comes to combat and Sonic, it has always felt a little bit awkward because 
Sonic has kind of had an awkward transition into 3D. I mean, the way that you dispatch enemies in 2D Sonic games is you jump on them or you spin dash into them or whatever. And, you know, it's similar to Mario. The difference is, is that Mario has had the opportunity to sort of evolve in the way that Mario dispatches enemies. And I actually think that taking kind of a Mario Odyssey approach to it, where the enemy encounters are somewhat optional, but you need to utilize the enemies in order to achieve certain goals, I think could be interesting. I'm not saying have Sonic, you know, possess the enemies or whatever, but that idea of utilizing enemies to achieve certain goals, if the enemies were almost like an extension of, you know, navigation or an extension of puzzle solving or whatever is happening in the open world, I think that could be interesting versus just like forcing me into stilted combat encounters like past 3D Sonic games have, especially since this one's open world. Like give the player combat options, you know? Yeah, and I mean, this may this may wind up just putting way too many wishes out there, but <laughs> especially after playing Skyward Sword last year and just taking that combat system and the different, like there's so many different ways that individual opponents, that individual enemies can change up the combat, the way that you actually have to approach different enemies. I mean, obviously we were just talking about how we don't want to see Sonic with a sword, but you can use Sonic speed and you can give him kind of directional style attacks with his spin dash that could give you something kind of akin to that eight-way combat system uh, that we see in Skyward Sword HD. Could be interesting. So, yeah, there, there, I think there's a lot of potential there with Sonic's combat. Of course, Sonic has always been a very gotta-go-fast style character. So I think in order to get a combat system that works with the blue blur, you've got to take that into account. But... You know, even taking that into account, I still think there are so many potentially good ideas out there. And frankly, Seiko, we just gave you like four or five. <laughs> so give us at least one of them, please. I think I think another big thing when it comes to Sonic and combat is just the enemy design. I mean, I think that having some of those like classic badniks in there is fine and kind of like a nice little bit of fan service, blah, blah, blah. Um but, you know, those those enemies were not designed for a combat-centric, battle-powerful enemies open-world Sonic game. You know what I mean? Like, you, you need to have your Goombas in there. You need to have your standard enemies, your standard badniks in there. But, you know, design new enemy types around a new combat system. Like, really lean into that. You mentioned Skyward Sword. That's one of the things that made Skyward Sword so special is they designed those enemies around that game's combat. You know, so I think the enemy design is almost just as important as the combat engine itself. And I mean, speaking of things that are important to Sonic, you know, maybe the number one, like, most important thing when it comes to Sonic is the movement. And part and parcel with movement and fluidity is the fact that this is an open world. Um, so our number two is just, I hope that they nail the movement of Sonic and the actual open world design of Starfall Islands. Sonic's always worked because it was an incredibly linear style gameplay. Uh, you were always trying to get from A to B and everything, all the different level elements were there to give you different ways that you could do that. 
You always had different paths you could take, upper and lower, left and right, depending on the style of gameplay, depending on the style of game that you were playing. But there was always this almost playground feel to the way that Sonic moves through many of the stages throughout his history. But now you're completely upending that formula by by throwing Sonic into an open world environment. But they're just like with the combat, there is a lot of potential there. And I think the way that they can best utilize that and what I would love to see from the design of this open world is kind of like what I was talking about. Make it feel like a playground. Whereas traditional Sonic games, both 2D and 3D, could, you know, once you get the flow to a level, you could run through it almost like, you know, a skateboard or a snowboarding course. Yeah, absolutely. You can jump from rails. You can, you know, combo off of enemies. You can do all these really cool, really satisfying combos and tricks to get from the beginning of the stage to the end. Take that and just make this open world Sonic game a big open world playground. Every aspect of the of the of Sonic's movement, you know, just use the use a lot of those level elements that have been in traditional Sonic games and throw them into the open world. Don't just have a bunch of you know, small foothills and mountains for Sonic to run over. Everywhere in this game should be bounce pads and speed rings and rails. It should be incredibly satisfying just the exploration, getting from one point on the map to another, getting from A to B no matter where you are in the open world. And once you realize where you need to get to go, there should be an incredibly satisfying, incredibly thrilling, incredibly, frankly, sick way to do that. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, don't have traditional fast travel in there. Make it so that you need to learn the flow of the game in order to get the most out of how fast you can actually travel. I don't want a game where I'm just holding a control stick Especially if I'm playing as Sonic the Hedgehog, I don't want a game where I'm just holding the control stick in one direction for two minutes just to get to where I need to go. Have me bouncing off of things like a massive blue pinball for two minutes. That's where you can get the most amount of fun in this game, in my opinion, is just from the movement, getting from one place to another. There are There's so much potential there to make it so incredibly fun and satisfying. Yeah, satisfying movement is not only part and parcel with just the character of Sonic. Gotta go fast, right? That is that is Sonic. Sonic and Speed are peanut butter and chocolate. They are synonymous. They, they work great together. So the movement has to feel fluid, but the actual design of the world has to be well done and satisfying too. A game that I was thinking of as you were talking just there, and I know this is going to be a weird comparison, but I was thinking about Insomniac's Spider-Man game on PlayStation 4 and now PS5. Um, and like Miles Morales and stuff. So one of the best parts about that game is just swinging around the city. And I never fast travel in that game because it's so fun and satisfying to learn that movement and to navigate that world. That's the vibe that I want from Sonic. Like I want Sonic Frontiers to be a, a movement system that I have to learn and a world that I have to learn. And by the end of that game, I want to just glide through that world, man. I just want to cut through it like a hot knife through butter and just like 
you know, be rewarded and have that satisfying movement and navigation based on the time I put in. I'm sure there's going to be like movement, like upgrades and stuff like this. It's an open world game. I'm sure you're going to be leveling up and stuff like this. Um, you know, I'm sure there's going to be collectibles and stuff throughout the world. That's all fine. But the actual navigation of it, the actual design of Starfall Islands has got to be pitch perfect to, to make that really come together. Yeah, you can't just throw a character like Sonic the Hedgehog into a more traditionally designed open world, something like you'd see in Red Dead Redemption or Grand Theft Auto or one of those other huge open world sandbox games. That's not the kind of game that Sonic is built for. Sonic is built for a game that feels like pinball meets Tony Hawk. Mm -hmm. those are the kind of level implements that you need to throw into this game. Just getting from one place to another should be a core focus of the gameplay for this team. I really hope it is. Now, of course, there's always going to be, I mean, we know there's going to be dungeon type uh, levels in this game. We know there's going to be more traditional aspects and stages in this game. Those are going to be in there somewhere. What we're mostly saying is, We hope it's not just scripted sequences. We hope it's not just Sonic, you know, boringly running around this massive open world just to get to the next one of those scripted sequences. We want to see the entire open world taking use of everything that the blue blur has to offer. Yep, absolutely. You know, in another game that comes to mind a little bit is something like a Kirby Air Ride. Obviously, it's very different. But the way that you can just sort of like glide through those worlds and like the speed and and the way that it all feels cohesive, it also kind of reminds me of kind of what, you know, what I'm looking for here. So I just, I, I really hope that that's where they're spending like a lot of development time. It's just the way it all feels. Man, I hope. There's so much potential with this game. But honestly, especially for all the jaded Sonic fans out there, I think we all know the number one thing that we really want to see from Sonic Frontiers because it's a problem that has plagued so many of specifically Sonic's 3D outings Mm -hmm. over the past few decades. And we already kind of saw... We already kind of saw a few good signs in this regard when they specifically said it had been pushed back from its previously planned 2021 release. Again, remember we said that uh, they initially wanted it to come out last year to coincide with Sonic's 30th anniversary, but instead decided to let it cook longer in the oven uh, and release it holiday 2022. And hopefully that's going to help alleviate a lot of our number one, which is, of course... You've got to get rid of all of those game-breaking bugs and glitches that have absolutely seen 3D Sonic fall flat on his face over and over and over again. I already brought up the fact that, you know, that painfully awkward Sonic uh, human love storyline, that wasn't even the worst part of Sonic 06. It was just how unplayable so much of the game was because of all of the game-breaking bugs and glitches and even when they tried to to reboot sonic again because sonic 06 was supposed to be a full stop reboot of the sonic franchise and even when they tried to reboot sonic again with sonic boom the exact same thing happened that that game was absolutely riddled with game breaking bugs and glitches that 
saw the blue blur tripping over his own shoes and again falling flat on his face. I want to love these games. I genuinely do. But some of them come out and they just make it nearly impossible not just to love them, but frankly, to literally play them. Yeah, it's always kind of unfortunate when you see just a kind of general lack of polish with some of these Sonic games. And I mean, this is a major video game franchise. This is a now 30-year-old franchise, and it deserves to have a, a level of polish to it. Now, we should be careful when we talk about the delay and everything, um, the kind of like postponement. That, you know, that has kind of been the scuttlebutt coming out of like some Sega um, investor stuff. It's not anything officially promoted by Sega. However, we do know, I mean, even just by the face of it, it's the game is scheduled for holiday 2022 and they announced it in May of 2020. Or uh, sorry, May of 2021. So like that's at least a year and a half of cook time from announcement to release. That's assuming that it wasn't already in development when they announced it. So, I mean, this game actually does have a little bit of just objective time in the oven that previous Sonic games haven't. A lot of people forget that there was a time when Sonic was coming out with a new game basically annually. And, you know, the quality of the game suffered as, as a result. Um, so even looking at just like objective facts, this game is going to have at least a year and a half, two years in the oven that a lot of these other Sonic games haven't. So I think that does bode well. And, um, and, and, you know, I hope that the, I hope that Sega kind of puts their money where their mouth is when it comes to that. And I hope that, you know, this game comes out and it is a polished experience. It is worth the wait. I don't know what you're talking about with annual release game franchises suffering diminishing returns, Seth. I have no clue. <laughs> cough, Assassin's Creed. Cough, Call of Duty. Cough, Madden. I have no clue what you're talking about in regards to that, Seth. Oh, yeah. That's that's never bitten anybody uh, in the rear end before. That's never been a bad idea. But, uh, you know, it does seem like it does seem like Sonic and, and Sonic Team and Sega are at least aware of that. Um, by, by all accounts, it sounds like they are at least, you know, notating their past failures in that regard. And they are kind of like, at least from what we're hearing and from what we're hoping, um, they, they are giving this thing the proper time in the oven to cook and be the game that it needs to be from a polished perspective. But again, even as we're saying all of this, we're still remaining cautious, very cautiously Mm -hmm. optimistic because, they just released a 3D Sonic game just a few months ago that should have been a slam dunk in the re-release of Sonic Colors Ultimate, but similarly wound up uh, getting a lot of backlash because of technical issues. Technical issues from a game that was already good. (laughs) So that's, you know, glad that we're letting this game cook longer. But even here in January 2022, we still have a very notable, very recent example of something like this happening. So it's still a big red flag and it absolutely had to be our number one because of it Mm -hmm. is at some point, especially with the fact that, I mean, games are releasing at an absolutely ridiculous pace these days. Seth and I can't keep up with them. Yeah. Well, I mean, and here's the reality of it is this game is coming out in holiday holiday this year. There's a very real chance, barring any delays that I hope don't happen, but there's a very real chance that this game is going to go toe to toe with Breath of the Wild 2. <laughs> you know? And it's That's like a fair point. 
And it's like, you better, if you're going to come for the king, you better not miss, man. Especially, this is going to be an open world game that's already kind of evoking Breath of the Wild and like its art style and stuff like this. If it comes out at the same time, like it better not be unpolished and glitchy. Like they, they better, you know, come swinging. Um, Cause they, they're going to have really, they're going to be standing in the shadow of giants with this game, you know? And I think they know that. And I, I've got a lot of, uh, high expectations, but also high hopes and, and cautious optimism with this game. Yes. Yeah. Again, cautious optimism is what we keep coming back to, but we really, we really do hope that the Sonic 06s and the Sonic Booms and the Sonic Colors Ultimate Mistakes and the Sonic Forces of the past are well and truly behind Sonic Team. I would love nothing more than for 3D Sonic to finally get his Sonic Mania moment. Yes, because with with the release of Sonic Mania, that proved to the world that not just good, but great Sonic games can be made. And once they finally figure out how to do that consistently with 3D Sonic titles, you will have a franchise that will stand toe to toe with the best platformers out there. So. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Doug, Doug, I know you're listening. Doug Bowser, friend of the show. Pass these notes along <laughs> to Sonic Team and Sega. Let them know. And tell them to put a chow garden in there, too, while you're at it. <laughs> exactly. Tell them to do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kind of low-key love the chow garden from the Sonic Adventure. I, hey, it would make me genuinely happy if Sonic Frontiers <laughs> had a chow garden. <laughs> it would me, too. You know, just talking about that, it honestly would not surprise me if something like that did wind up in Sonic Frontiers. Because whenever you have open world games, you inevitably have a ton of side missions and side quests that you can do. And honestly, is there a more iconic side mission in Sonic history than the Chow Garden? Fishing with Big the Cat. But otherwise... Fishing with Big... Exactly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But what about you guys? What would you love to see from Sonic's newest 3D adventure dropping later on this year. Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and join the conversation over on Discord. Let's talk us some Sonic Frontiers and some hopes and dreams for the end of 2022. Uh, But yeah, I mean, like we said earlier, Sonic Sonic Frontiers was supposed to release last year to coincide with the 30th anniversary of Sonic. However, Sonic did really kind of blow it out for their for their 30th anniversary that amazing amazing concert they had but but even here in January 2022 there's actually a couple fairly notable sonic uh there's actually a couple fairly notable sonic anniversaries just here this month yeah yeah we got the uh just i mean just within the past couple of weeks there's been anniversaries for sonic advance sonic heroes back on the gamecube um, yes. you know, Sonic Adventure 2 Battle, quite a few notable little Sonic game, uh, Sonic games have been released just in this time span. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, we're talking about 2021 kind of being the year of the anniversary when it came to a lot of Nintendo games. But here in January, 2022, we are going to be celebrating the silver anniversary of, and this is not hyperbole, one of the greatest games ever made. And a game that, again, this is not hyperbole, really changed the course of Nintendo history. Mm -hmm. 
And it's a game we actually didn't get the opportunity to even play on a Nintendo console until just a couple years ago. However, with it celebrating its silver anniversary this month and with its undeniable effect on the history of the Big N, our first retrospective this year is on the iconic Final Fantasy VII. So Final Fantasy VII released initially in Japan for the PlayStation on January 31st, 1997. The game was directed by Yoshinori Kitase, who had previously directed Final Fantasy VI and co-directed Chrono Trigger, both on the Super Nintendo. It was produced by series creator Hironobu Sagaguchi, and it featured artwork from Tetsuya Nomura, as well as music by Nobuo Uematsu. Um, who are those guys? Like yeah, never of heard Just of them. Just who are all of them? <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of him, right? Um, it's actually kind of interesting. People don't talk about Kitase in the same in the same way that they talk about like Uematsu and Sakaguchi and even Nomura, but um, pretty legendary pedigree. I mean, if you if you look at Kitase's games, I mean, even just being the director of Final Fantasy VI and co-director <laughs> exactly, of Chrono exactly Trailer, yes, like you know. he could have done nothing else in his career and his legacy would have been cemented, frankly. But yes, yeah. here he is as the director of Final Fantasy VII as well. You're just showing off at that point, sir. Hey, I mean, it's it's one of the greatest games ever made. And as we mentioned, this game, very important to Nintendo history, which is why we're covering here a PlayStation game on our Nintendo podcast. And uh, in fact, this retrospective is kind of a sequel almost to our uh, N64 retrospective that we did back on episode 55. So I want to point you guys there uh, where we discussed the fallout between Nintendo and Sony, which kind of in turn damaged Nintendo's relationship with Square and ended up birthing their biggest com uh, com competitor, the PlayStation. So that's kind of where the story of Final Fantasy VII begins. Yeah, when Final Fantasy VII was beginning development, initially beginning development, uh, it happened so early on that their initial plan was just to release it as a Super Famicom game, to release mm -hmm. it on the Super Nintendo. And of course, I mean, despite the fact that you know, a couple other machines, a couple other companies were starting to come into the fold. Oh, why wouldn't it just be a foregone conclusion that the next Final Fantasy was going to release on a Nintendo platform the same as every other Final Fantasy game had up to that point? Yeah. Square and, and Nintendo, over the course of the past decade, had developed an incredibly strong working relationship. And I mean, you really can't talk about the history of Square without talking about Nintendo. It's because of the Nintendo Entertainment System that Square was able to survive and endure to this day. Without the Nintendo Entertainment System, there would be no Square Enix right now. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, associate Final Fantasy with the PlayStation brand now, because as mm -hmm. we'll get into, this game sort of defined the PlayStation brand. Um, and, and forever tied Final Fantasy with PlayStation. But yes, I mean, for the early days of this series, it was a Nintendo brand, specifically. And for Final Fantasy, 
like the the reason that they were so successful was because of the Japanese market. Mm-hmm. Japanese RPGs were incredibly successful over in the East. The sales numbers for Final Fantasy just continued to grow and grow and grow after each new installment. But as evidenced by the fact that we only received three of those first six games here in the West before they started to re-release them, it, the West just was not a viable market for Japanese RPGs. Even legendary games like the aforementioned Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger did, frankly, abysmal numbers when they released over in North America, when they initially released over in North America. Uh, But I mean, Square was still churning them out. They were still doing more than enough sales over in Japan to keep it going. But... But eventually something had to break, right, Seth? Yeah, I mean, eventually something had to break. And, and you know, as they're, you know, a, a big kind of thing with the N64, and, and as we mentioned in that previous retrospective, kind of birthing the PlayStation, creating their own competitor, um, a big part of it was their choice to go, you know, to stick with cartridge-based N64 cartridges. And this provided a, just a straight-up hardware limitation that as Square was looking to the advent of 3D gaming and looking to move towards that with Final Fantasy VII, they just couldn't make it work uh, on N64 cartridges. Um, it, it was causing too much of a strain. There wasn't enough data um, available on there. And so you're looking next door to this brand new shiny PlayStation who has got, you know, CD-ROM capabilities and much more storage available on that and still had to be on multiple discs. (laughs) But but, But but it's not like Nintendo, it's not like Nintendo wasn't really trying to make CD-based media work uh, there in the 90s because they made multiple attempts at it. Nintendo knew that CD-based media was going to be the future of the industry. That's why they initially tried that experiment with Sony to create that Nintendo PlayStation, the CD-based Nintendo PlayStation. And then after that fell through, they wound up going into a deal with Philips that very famously fell flat on its face right out the gate. Right. But then, you know, and that's ultimately why they decided to go with the, the Nintendo 64 is because cartridge-based media was something they were very comfortable with. They knew how to do it. And that seemed, that was essentially the only option left to them at that point because they couldn't get the CD-based media to work yet. They even tried to make CD-based media work on the Nintendo 64 with the yeah. Nintendo 64 DD. So Nintendo made attempts. It wasn't just like they eschewed CD-based media to just continue going with cartridges. They made several attempts in the 90s at trying to make CD-based media work, and they just couldn't. It wasn't until the Nintendo GameCube that they were able to find something that worked for them. But unfortunately, Square wasn't going to be able to wait that long. Because with the advent of 3D capabilities and with all of the extra memory that a lot of the new technology within video games is going to take the N64 cartridge just, it was not going to do the job, unfortunately. Yeah. So just to put this into perspective, um, it would have required an estimated 30 Nintendo 64 DD discs to run final fantasy seven properly. Um, whereas on PlayStation, it was on three discs. So that is insane. <laughs> so could you imagine getting a 30 disc game? <laughs> Play five minutes, put in the next disc, you know. 
So yeah, that it, it was it was a, a necessary move for Square. It wasn't like Square, you know, some people feel like Square like betrayed Nintendo or whatever. It was a necessary move on the company's part to to sort of part ways with Nintendo, and um and and that was kind of a, a new relationship that they uh, that they found with with Sony, um and it was something that you know they still maintain to this day, um and it really can't be overstated how important Final Fantasy VII was to the PlayStation brand, how it was marketed, the way that this game completely changed the game for Nintendo's biggest competitor in Sony and PlayStation. And, you know, as a result, changed the game for Nintendo. Yeah. The fact that Square ultimately had to go with Sony, I mean, that was a major coup within the video games industry because obviously the entire reason that the PlayStation exists, and this is something we go into back in our retrospective on the PlayStation, that Nintendo PlayStation experiment, the whole reason the PlayStation exists was essentially because of Sony's spite toward Nintendo. They decided to compete directly with Nintendo out of spite, and this was a big part of that was them coming in and stealing Nintendo's girlfriend, essentially. <laughs> kind with, of, yeah. Yeah, with uh, with Square. Because, uh, again, they had a, a fantastic relationship up to that point. But it got to the point where Square just kind of said, is like, you know, you can't, you can't give me what I need anymore. So I'm going to go over here. This company over there with their much bigger assets is going to finally be able to do what I need. Uh, It's finally going to be able to do what I need. It's what I need in a relationship. (laughs) Right. It's not. Yeah. Like it was a situation where like, it actually is you. It's not me. It's you. (laughs) So, but but I mean, the reason for that, we go into the, we go into the technology, you know, initially again, final fantasy seven was just going to be this relatively safe installment that they were going to release on the, um, it was just going to be this relatively safe installment they were going to release on the Super Famicom, on the Super Nintendo. But as you know, things progressed, they actually wound up having to halt production on Final Fantasy VII for some time because there was another game at Square who really needed all of those development assets to be you know, to, to be brought on to finish uh, a little game that we may have mentioned uh, once or twice here on the show called Chrono Trigger. Yeah. That, uh, that needed a lot of those development assets to, to be finished. And, you know, to its credit, Chrono Trigger turned out okay. So it seemed like that was a good idea at the time, but by the time that they, that they went back to final fantasy seven to work on it and finish it, that's when kind of everything came to a head because, you know, obviously, by the time they came back to it, the Super Nintendo wasn't really even going to be a viable option at that point. And with all the new uh, 3D technology that was coming into the that was coming into the uh, the landscape at the time, they found very shortly that not even the Nintendo 64 was going to be capable of holding all this stuff. And they decided, sorry, it's not you. It's us and our needs. So we're going over here. Sony smelled blood in the water. They said, oh, now we can really stick it to our competitor. Nintendo jilted us. We're going to cause uh, we're going to cause Square to jilt them. 
Yeah, and I mean, I want to take you guys back to that that sort of place in time when this game was coming out. Like, I mentioned the marketing. Like, they really backed the horse that was Final Fantasy VII. Like, they knew what they had. Um, they knew that this is going to be a massive deal. I mean, they were pitching this thing essentially as a playable movie. Yeah. And it's, it's really bizarre that they did this because, like we've already talked about, JRPGs in the West were not like there was not an established audience for Japanese RPGs in the West. But I, I honestly don't know if it was because Sony was just that confident in the game. I don't know if it was because they were doing everything in their power to, to show their brand new girlfriend uh, square, how much they loved and appreciated them. But yeah, just like you said, a lot of that 3d technology that wasn't able to fit on a Nintendo 64 cartridge, a lot of that was the cinematic style cutscenes that games in the mid to late 90s were starting to throw all over the place. It wasn't just the 3D models within the game. It was these movie style cutscenes that were being thrown into not just RPGs, but it felt like every game that was released in the mid to late 90s had some type of opening cinematic trailer before the main uh, menu oh yeah it, it became a you know final fantasy 7 is is an extraordinarily cinematic game not even just from every aspect of it really kind of emulates movies i remember like when they were marketing it some of those commercials were like the the best movie of the year isn't coming to a theater near you <laughs> you know yeah it was the idea that you could you know you could play a cinematic you know, movie scale adventure uh, at your home on the PlayStation. And I think that marketing is like super effective and it informed so much of their game design. I mean, we've talked a, a bit now about the kind of like moving from 2D sprite work to 3D polygonal models, which was the trend at the time. But Final Fantasy VII, I mean, we could argue that it, it doesn't, and I would say it doesn't hold up today, but like the way that it mixed those with like pre-rendered backgrounds to look more realistic in mm -hmm. quotes, um, basically like pasting JPEGs, <laughs> you know, basically, in the yeah. background. I miss pre-rendered backgrounds. There's a part of me that's nostalgic for it, but it, it doesn't hold up as well as, as some of the stuff we were seeing on N64. I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, the, the games without that hold up better today. But I do have a certain nostalgia for it. And it was all in the service of making this the most realistic cinematic adventure possible, you know. Yeah, even when it came to the battle screen, up to that point, all the Final Fantasy games, you just had the characters, you had the player characters on the right, you had the enemies on the left, often as static images, and then you would just navigate through the menus, you would choose your attacks, and then your character would perform a very basic animation, and then a number of damage would appear on, uh, on the screen, or poison, or paralysis silence, or whatever you were doing. That would just appear as an icon on the screen or damage would appear. And then that was it. Your character would walk up, do a little swing motion. And that was essentially as in-depth as the, as the visual presentation got in the battle screen. But with Final Fantasy VII, like there was full 360-degree camera movement. There were these large sweeping attack gestures. There was all kinds of these big over-the-top movements and the summons in that game. The summons themselves were like cinematic trailers. Oh yeah, they they were uh, like they actually produced them as if they were a film. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, again, like, cutscenes that were, like, with the measure of a movie, emotional cutscenes. I mean, they, they, they took this game seriously, and it paid off for them. I mean, even still today, Final Fantasy VII is regarded as, you know, one of the greatest games ever made, I think even still to this day. And, yeah. um, I, I mean, it absolutely paid off. I think that the the cinematic approach to everything, including the music, um, really did end up paying off for them. Um, when you look at Uematsu's score for Final Fantasy VII, um, he was kind of faced with this, like, okay, if we're, if we're going to make this a cinematic movie-like video game experience, I should move away from the traditional, like, melodic structure of video games. I, it doesn't need to have a, like, catchy, earwormy melody, even though I would argue that it kind of ended up having that anyway. <laughs> um, with, like, classic... Th- I mean, you know, people have some of this stuff burned into their brain. But when you look at something like One-Winged Angel... which is maybe the most iconic piece of video game music ever composed, um, it's a very cinematic, operatic song. So I find it really interesting that, like, even down to the music, they were like, let's make this cinematic. That, that's like the, the going word behind all the design decisions of Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, I mean, we've used the word cinematic already, it feels like a dozen times now, but... You have to understand, while cinematic, quote-unquote, video games may be relatively common, especially when it comes to AAA releases these days, when it came to the mid-90s, imagine leaping from something like Super Video Gamey to Super Mario World, even as phenomenal as it is, to something that legit felt like a movie that you could go see at a theater. Even though the PlayStation 1 cutscenes and the graphics don't really hold up nearly that well today. That's what it felt like when we were seeing this on TV, we genuinely felt like we were seeing the next true evolution of video games because yes, Square and Sony were absolutely hammering this home. Despite the fact that JRPGs had not been able to gain a foothold in the West, even with now iconic games like final fantasy six and Chrono Trigger they decided just to go all out with the marketing campaign. I think they spent like actually $20 million in marketing just yeah. uh, in the West on this game. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. Final Fantasy VI, as much as I love that game, it's still my favorite Final Fantasy game. Um, that game, essentially, it, it really did feel like that game was Pitfall and Final Fantasy VII was Uncharted. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that kind of leap in terms of scale and in terms in terms of like how big it all felt. Yeah. And when it came to the the advertisements, they didn't have the gameplay anywhere. It was just those cinematic cutscenes from the game. They did mm-hmm. everything in their power to turn this game into an event. It became by the time it released, it was the video game event of the year. And even though a young Eric had never played a JRPG before. By the time it came out, this was a game I needed to own. I absolutely needed to own this game 
when it came out. And I remember very vividly when my mom came home from the PX, just holding this copy of Final Fantasy VII, just almost like, is this what you wanted? Is this what you were talking about? (laughs) I was like, yes, yes, I need it. And I played it and it was unlike anything I'd ever played before. It was absolutely amazing. And just seeing all those cutscenes within the context of the game, each one of them blew my mind. And to be completely honest with you, it made me forget about Nintendo for a while. Yeah. No, I, I completely relate to that. I mean, because growing up, and I've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but I was kind of the Nintendo kid. I had all the Nintendo stuff. And then my my best friend at the time, uh, Justin, he had PlayStation and Dreamcast and, and all this stuff. Basically, I had Nintendo. He had everything else. So when he got a PlayStation and when he got Final Fantasy VII, like it felt big. Like it felt real in a way that what I was playing on N64 just didn't like, Mm -hmm. I can't stress that enough. Like even to me as a diehard, you know, lifelong Nintendo fan, I I completely agree with you. It made me forget games like final fantasy seven, legend of Dragoon, the stuff, these, these big RPGs that were happening, wild arms, you know, on, on PlayStation made me forget about that whole world because it just felt like such a larger scale. It felt, it it was mind blowing. Like it really was. And another massive impact that Final Fantasy VII had was the fact that you could very much argue that when the PlayStation originally came out to compete with Nintendo, they were trying to compete directly with Nintendo. What I mean by that is who was the mascot of the original PlayStation? It was Crash Bandicoot, (laughs) right? It was a mascot platformer. Because in the mid-90s, still, it felt like everybody and their dog had to have their own mascot platformer. But Mario was the king, still is the king of mascot platformers. So you had Sega, who was trying to compete with Nintendo in that regard, and arguably had the upper hand for a little while. But of course, Nintendo wound up winning that fight handily. But here comes PlayStation, who for some reason decided they were also going to have their own mascot platformer to go up one-on-one against the plumber. And yeah, they were, they had a lot of other games on their system as well, but that was the face of the PlayStation that they were putting up against Nintendo. But when Final Fantasy VII came out, when this massive event dropped on Sony's PlayStation, all of a sudden, Sony and the PlayStation really developed a much more cohesive identity. You didn't have a platformer game. You had this large cinematic story-driven, you know, tale of intrigue and hatred, this huge 50-hour epic that was unlike anything you'd played in any Mario game prior to Mario RPG, which released the previous year. But Nintendo hasn't really been a name historically synonymous with JRPGs. Obviously, no. yes. All those old Square, uh, all those old SquareSoft games did release on Nintendo, but for the longest time, they were essentially just these niche releases on the fringe of the rest of the Nintendo games. They were the other games that were releasing outside of things like Mario Brothers Three and Kirby's Adventure and Mega Man and Castlevania and all of these other platformers. Final Fantasy was just kind of this extra weird little franchise over here for people who, for some reason, didn't like all the quote-unquote good games. But when Final Fantasy VII dropped on the PlayStation, 
the entire genre of the JRPG felt like it immediately latched onto Sony at that point. It was kind of ground zero for this huge surge of JRPGs in the few, uh, in the coming few years. Yeah, it, it was really smart. It was it was brilliant, frankly, of Sony to latch on and really blow up the JRPG genre because, you know, video games over here were not being taken as seriously and and you could argue still aren't being as ta- uh, taken as seriously as they were in Japan and are in Japan. Um and so when you released, you know, that JRPGs may not have been a big deal as big a deal anyway here in the states. Uh, during that time, but they certainly were over in Japan. So they knew they would have a stranglehold on the Japanese market if they got into, you know, into uh, talks with Square and released games like Final Fantasy VII on their system. And it absolutely paid off. But Final Fantasy VII had the distinction of being not only the perfect game to cater to that market and the perfect game to legitimize the PlayStation brand to that market, but it also, again, because of the way they marketed it here in the States, it also became the perfect thing for kids like you and I to latch onto and be like, this is big, this is the future of video games. What's Nintendo again? (laughs) You know? And after Final Fantasy VII came out, Final Fantasy VII was very similar to Doom and Super Mario Brothers and Street Fighter in terms of once Final Fantasy VII came out, it felt like every other developer in the industry at least considered making their own JRPG at that point. Like, How many PlayStation 1 JRPGs did we wind up getting after Final Fantasy VII? I would argue that PlayStation 1 still has the greatest, you know, catalog of JRPGs in history. I mean, there's just so many. Yeah. But just because of Final Fantasy 7, I mean, honestly, kind of still to this day, when you think about it, if you're if you're a JRPG fan, you're probably thinking about picking up a PlayStation because of that. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Because for at least several console generations, PlayStation just was the JRPG console. It was their home. That's where you were going to find the brand new Final Fantasies. That's where you were going to find the new Dragon Quest, the Shin Megami Tensei games, the Personas. Those all lived on uh, Sony's console. And it gave them a huge step up, a huge advantage when it came to Nintendo because there was this massively popular, this massive new popular genre of game that was exploding uh, that had been more popular in Japan than it ever was and was now exploding in the West. And Nintendo had nothing to do with it. There was an entire genre of video games, of incredibly popular video games that Nintendo just couldn't do anything with. They had a few things like Quest 64. And of course they released Tales of Symphonia. And Nintendo had a couple but just they could not compete with Sony in regards to this massively popular genre. No. Yeah. So, I mean, you look at it, Final Fantasy VII created, basically defined the PlayStation brand, essentially created a new wave in the genre that it belonged to, um, impacted us here in the States and, and like brought us into the fold properly of JRPGs and made us want a PlayStation versus a Nintendo. And this would end up, especially when you look at uh, PS2 versus GameCube. I mean, there's no, I mean, the PS2 absolutely 
you know, murdered the GameCube in terms of sales. I mean, this is something yep. that kind of hung over Nintendo's head and you could argue still does in a way hang, yeah. uh, hang over Nintendo's head uh, to this day. I mean, there, there's so much, the, the impact of Final Fantasy VII cannot be overstated. A, an incredibly important game, an absolute moment in history. Um, but I mean, to talk about the game itself, I mean, one of the things that we, we've talked about kind of the uh, mechanical things of it, things like music and, and the way the game looks and everything. But I really do want to touch on the story of Final Fantasy VII because I think people kind of underrate the story of Final Fantasy VII a little bit. I think people kind of kind of write off how impressive that game's story is, the the characters and, and the things they tackle in that game's story is still resonant today, I think. Well, when you talk about the story of Final Fantasy VII, inevitably the first thing that comes to, the first and only thing that comes to a lot of people's minds is, of course, that twist. Yeah. And if you've somehow never played Final Fantasy VII before, I don't want to spoil that for you. Suffice it to say, one of those, suffice it to say, one of the most shocking moments in the history of video games happens in Final Fantasy VII, legitimately up there with Would You Kindly from Bioshock. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the story at large, yes, I think it's very well done. Uh, there, I think there was some stuff that was lost in translation, some stuff that didn't exactly translate the best over. And I mean, they were changing stuff up on the fly a lot during development. So they had to rewrite, uh, rewrite certain sections for characters. They had to rewrite entire chunks of the plot. So there was some disparaging elements, I feel, in the story. You had uh, you had terrorism going along with weird giant snakes, going along with aliens, going along with earth magic. And it does wind up coming together in a nice cohesive whole, but it did very much speak to me in terms of a, a, a kind of slapdash and a kind of scatterbrain development. Yeah, I mean, there there are things about the the sort of like world setup about Final Fantasy VII that maybe isn't the strongest of the series, but I think the character work uh, in the game is some of the strongest. Again, I don't want to get super yeah. deep into spoilers, even though the game's like twenty five years old now. Um, <laughs> but like this game, you know, tackles like identity crisis. It tackles like the the notion of an unreliable narrator. The um, the characterization of a character like um, like like Eris who is like kind of portrayed in the modern day and things like this is why I didn't like Advent children is because they kind of like play her up. Like she's this angelic, you know, just like altruistic, you know, pure character. And really in the game, she's like a great character. Like if, if the only thing that you knew about, about this character was just based on what you saw in Advent children, you would get basically nothing, but She's like a cool character who has depth to her and goes through some really significant motions and changes throughout the course of the plot. And I mean, one of the most significant character deaths in the history of video games, which is, you know, I, I won't go into details about how it happens or the fallout of it happening, but the way it's handled in this game is really significant. And it actually ties into uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi's death of his own mother. Um, 
which he cited as kind of like while they were developing Final Fantasy three, his mother passed away and he's always wanted to kind of tackle with life and death. And he got to in the plot of Final Fantasy seven. And I, I think that's really beautiful. I think the game handles that really beautifully. Um, I, I think that the game handles again, the nature of identity really beautifully. And um, I just think that doesn't get said enough about Final Fantasy seven. And, and as bad as I, as much as I hate to say it, as bad as I feel saying it, I still think that even after all that, genuinely one of my favorite moments in the game is still the wall market. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which is not serious at all. Uh, well, and what's and what's funny about that is like the the way that, you know, again, I talk about the characterization of, of Eris in that game. And like, that's a situation where you kind of go on like a little bit of a date with her. Mm-hmm. And you you kind of like she she's playful and she's kind of like antagonistic a little bit with Cloud and you kind of get to know her in that moment and she's not exactly the goody two shoes that you know the game <laughs> kind of makes you think she is and um, th- there's there's a kind of like fun back and forth with her in that moment it's it's a really good the game is a really good character study. You know, you can say whatever you want about the story at large or about the world at large, but the characters in this game are wonderful. I certainly won't deny that. I mean, some of the most iconic characters in video game history appear. I mean, the main character, Cloud, is kind of the prototype spiky-haired swordsman character. Yeah, like, yeah. Like so many characters, especially in JRPG history, who may not even be trying to emulate Cloud, wind up being compared back to Cloud Strife. Because Cloud has become just, again, this such prototypical JRPG protagonist in so many respects. And then, of course, you have Barrett. I absolutely adore Barrett. He's Great this, character. He's this big, brash, maybe almost a little bit stereotypical uh, African-American or, I guess, African-Japanese character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who is a complete softie around his daughter, but he's such a badass because he literally has a gun for a hand. Uh, and then, of course, Tifa has become iconic in her own right. And then, of course, you've got bizarre characters like Kate Sith in there. And then cult favorites like Sid and Yuffie. Vincent Valentine. So, Vincent yeah. Valentine, who literally transforms into Universal-style movie monsters as part of his limit breaks. And then you've got the first quadruped playable character in Final Fantasy VII and Red Thirteen. So it was a great cast of characters and much less bloated than Final Fantasy VI was. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Final Fantasy VI does have a bloated cast, but I mean, we haven't even mentioned the antagonist of the game, Sephiroth, which is, you know, kind of a a big deal. Sephiroth being one of the most iconic villains in fiction, basically, and the relationship that Sephiroth has with Cloud and the antagonistic way. Like, one of the things I love about Sephiroth in this game is the way that he's just, he kind of pops up like throughout the entire course of it. Like he's kind of just peppered through there in a really interesting way. And he kind of plays a mental game with the characters before he kind of like actually becomes physically violent and antagonistic. And I really love that about it. It's a really, they do some clever things with Sephiroth and his relationship to cloud cloud kind of like looking up to Sephiroth as, as a character, um, and, and, and that pre-existing relationship and the way that it feeds into everything happening with Cloud is super interesting. Um, they, they haven't really done that in other Final Fantasy games. Admittedly, the, the memory discrepancy 
mm-hmm. especially when you're talking about Cloud and Zach. Admittedly, that still kind of confuses me, but oh, I love I, it. I'm <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not saying I don't love it. It's still one of my favorite games of all time, but yeah, the game certainly does a lot. There's a lot that goes on in this game from a narrative aspect. Uh, honestly, for me though, I think the most interesting thing, even more so than the characters and the narrative, I loved the materia system in this mm. game. I thought the materia system was so intelligent. Rather than have uh, abilities that a character learns as they level up, rather than just having character classes, all the spells and all the abilities that you learn throughout traditional Final Fantasy style games, those are all in the form of these little magical orbs called materia that can slot directly into the equipped weapons and armor that you have available. Yes. And can be so, reworked. And there, there's no real, like, quote unquote, jobs or classes in Final Fantasy VII. Exactly. Yeah. All the magic spells that you get all take the form of materia that you can give to whichever character you want. All the skills like steel and sense and just all the skills in the game have their own materia. And then you have passive abilities like cover uh, and HP up. And then you've got uh, the the support materia, which I thought was just absolutely genius. Uh, the support materia that you could use to augment the material that you already have. Sure, you could give your character a spell like lightning, but if you augment that with the support material all, all of a sudden your spell would attack all enemies. Or subsequently, if you uh, channeled that through a healing material, you would have a cure all. The all material in Final Fantasy VII was probably low-key the best material in the game. (laughs) And then, of course, you have the summons, which I mentioned earlier, which were one of, if not the coolest parts of the battle system of that game. Because even though they were ostensibly just spells that did damage to all opponents in a certain element, again, they were like these cinematic cutscenes. This massive god of a mythological character would show up and go through this entire attack sequence. They're kind of tame by today's standards. But just seeing them back in the original Final Fantasy PlayStation 1 cutscene form was still just, and I hate to use the word epic, but that's genuinely how it felt with those. And I just, I love the materia system and how they could do, because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the equipment you had, like that was actually a consideration when you were equipping something is because you wanted to make sure you had equipment that could, that you could link up support material with, or that had a lot of material slots to give you a lot of abilities. But there were some really powerful pieces of equipment that didn't have linked slots to allow you to use support material, or they didn't have many material slots at all. They might be strong, but they didn't allow for a lot of extra Uh, abilities so even that was a consideration and then just because of all the different things that they did the different synergies that you could find even outside of the support materials the different synergies that you could find with the materials were so interesting i thought i was the smartest person on the planet when (laughs) i gave barrett the cover and counterattack materials ah yes I thought I was the smartest person on the planet. I was like, look at this combo that I have found. The cover materia actually allows the character who has that materia to 
to cover one of their allies if they're being attacked by an enemy. And the counterattack materia, as you might imagine, dear audience, allows that character to counterattack if they are physically attacked. So you turn Barrett into this huge tank, have him take hits for enemies, and then in addition to taking those hits and protecting the uh, protecting your allies, you're also counterattacking each time, even outside of his active time battle designated attacks. So I just thought the materia system was so cool and so interesting. I played around with so much of it. I also adored collecting all the enemy skills with the enemy skill materia. Uh, shout out to to Royal Guard. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's a great battle system. They they did. I mean, Square's always been good about making a really unique and, and innovative battle system in Final Fantasy VII. Certainly no exception. One of my favorite battle systems in, in a Final Fantasy game still. It, it's great. Yeah. But I mean, we could go on and on about how amazing the game is from so many different aspects. But yeah, ultimately, we're just here to talk about the impact that Final Fantasy VII had on Nintendo. Because... Again, like we've said, it, it's still an impact that's arguably being felt to this day. I mean, when it comes to the biggest and most current JRPGs, like Nintendo still doesn't get new Final Fantasies as they are released. They're still not getting new Dragon Quest games as they are released. They're still not getting a lot of high-profile JRPGs as they're being released. Sure, we get them eventually, we finally got Final Fantasy VII on the Nintendo Switch a while back. We wound up getting Final Fantasy X and X2 re, uh, uh, the collection on the Switch. We wound up getting Dragon Quest XI uh, on yep. the Nintendo Switch eventually, but it was still a while after that game came out. So when it comes to massive new AAA JRPGs, Nintendo, to this day, is still kind of on the back foot. They're still a secondary console in a lot of people's eyes. And when it comes to their relationship with Square, it has been repaired quite a bit. But I'm pretty sure after Final Fantasy VII came out, Square wouldn't release another game on a Nintendo console until both the heads of Square and Nintendo stepped down. Such was the animosity. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's intense. I mean, the the impact of Final Fantasy VII uh, is an earth shattering impact in the industry for Nintendo, for PlayStation. Um, as you mentioned, you can now play this and all of those old uh, PlayStation One Final Fantasy games on the Nintendo Switch. Um, we finally, after years and years and years, back in 2019. Uh, got Final Fantasy VII on the Switch, which is a, a low-key momentous occasion Yeah, to, to finally have that playable on a Nintendo console. Um, of course, Final Fantasy VII has a prolific ongoing remake on PlayStation 4 and 5 happening, and yep. who knows? Maybe someday that'll come to a Nintendo console. <laughs> Maybe. When it's Maybe. done in 40 years. <laughs> Maybe. I, I don't see that coming to the Nintendo Switch. Maybe to the Switch's successor. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we've certainly got plenty of really awesome JRPGs to enjoy on the Nintendo Switch now. That's not to say that Nintendo hasn't kind of started to crawl back out of that JRPG hole that they found themselves in for literal entire console generations. But yeah, still when it comes to the big high profile AAA JRPGs, 
it's those still aren't games that you expect to see within the first year, at least on a Nintendo platform. And such is the impact that a game that came out now 25 years ago is still having on the industry, a, a genre that has become beloved, universally beloved now, uh, in large part due to Final Fantasy VII. Uh, the the impact of this one game alone really cannot be understated. And its place within Nintendo history specifically has just always been endlessly interesting for me. Yep, absolutely. Well, before we wrap up our Final Fantasy VII talk, I do have some comments from the All In community related to this game that I wanted to shout out here um, just here at the end. Uh, we had a comment from our buddy Hambone Johnny. Shout out to Hambone Johnny, who says, I have a unique relationship with the Final Fantasy series. I didn't really get into them until college. My sophomore year roommate was playing Final Fantasy X, and I was enthralled watching him. Through talking with him, I learned that Seven was his favorite, so for the next few weeks, all of our time was spent finishing up Ten, so that we could go back and play through Seven. What an amazing game. I still don't love the blocky polygons. No nostalgia here for the PlayStation. But what they were able to do from a storytelling and character development standpoint was so stellar, it certainly made up for any lacking visuals. I've never beaten Final Fantasy VII myself, as I always seem to get stuck in the late game, either stuck at a boss or distracted by the weird robot tower defense game. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's fair. I was partial to the snowboarding myself. There, there are a couple of cool little moments and little like mini games there in Final Fantasy VII. Um, I've got a comment here from Shy Guy City. I'm going to kind of like chop this this comment from Shy Guy City up to avoid spoilers. But um, he says, I got it for Christmas that year, but I was a bit too young for it. For some reason, I couldn't figure out how to save. <laughs> I also thought I was nearly <laughs> done with the first disc by the time I met Aerith in the church, which I don't know if that's even a tenth of the first disc's length. Uh, years later, I did eventually play through the whole thing and liked it a lot at the time, but like the vast majority of games of that era, I think it really shows its age now and is also supremely overrated by people who grew up with it. Soundtrack is incredible, though. I think in the series, it's second only to Final Fantasy X. Um, that's fair. I, I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, their Final Fantasy, kind of like their Doctor Who, like we talked about earlier. It's like, this is my Final Fantasy. For me, it's six. But um, but seven certainly still in in high regard for me. Um, Shy Guy City again. I'm gonna dance around this a little bit, but he does talk a little bit uh, about Cloud as a character that's interesting, um, and this kind of taps into something I was saying earlier. Uh, he says one more thing I do want to say is that Cloud gets made fun of as like the start of the super typical spiky hair giant sword generic JRPG protagonist now, but he's genuinely a super interesting character. Um. He talks about some of the things I was talking about, like disassociative um, identity disorder and things, and, and how that was way ahead of its time from a writing standpoint, and the series has still never done anything that interesting again. They tried with the FF8 cast backstories, but it didn't work out quite as well. It's also part of the reason why stuff like Advent Children really fell flat for me. They went back to making him a brooding, tryhard character. So, I, I, I do agree with that. And then we did get one last comment uh, from Eldorn who says, I'll try not to be too long-winded here, but Final Fantasy VII is a very special game to me. My first consoles growing up were the NES, then the SNES, but instead of going with the N64, my parents brought home a PlayStation with a few random games that I don't particularly remember and Final Fantasy VII. 
I remember spending nights watching my mom work through her playthrough of FF7, thinking the game was so cool. I would get in my turns on the weekend with the game, but initially it was my mom's game and she played it the most. We'd watch her and occasionally have fun with the whole family trying to beat the high score in the roller coaster or snowboarding minigames. There you go, mm-hmm. Eric. There you go. <laughs> I loved how cool the summon attack animations were. Cloud looks so cool. There's giant sword and amazing victory pose. I love how the materia system worked. You could change out the spells and make your characters use the type of magic you wanted. I would often give my characters a specific element, like in Chrono Trigger. I loved having oh, non-human nice. characters in your party, too. I like Red 13 a lot. Chocobos were also a favorite, or as we called them back then, Cuckachickaboos. <laughs> I don't know how, but true story. <laughs> Everybody you had need, their weird way. <laughs> you need a guide for the chocobo breeding in that game. If you were just trying, <laughs> if you were just trying through trial and error to get a gold chocobo in that game, it would take you forever. If you yeah. if you play that game and you're trying to breed chocobos, get a guide. Just save yourself <laughs> the hassle. I promise you. I promise you. Yep. Yeah, and he uh, he ends here saying, This game solidified my love for the Final Fantasy series, being my first real introduction to it, and it is still my favorite game series to this day. So great stuff from the community. Certainly a lot of love for Final Fantasy VII from the community and from us. Yeah, Final Fantasy VII is the reason, and I know I'm one of millions around the world who can say this, but Final Fantasy VII is the reason that I love JRPGs today. Absolutely. But what about all you guys out there? Clearly, a few of our community members love Final Fantasy VII. But what about you? Do you love Final Fantasy VII? Let us know. Reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast, on Twitter at All In Podcast. Join the conversation with us and Hambone Johnny and all of our friends over on Discord. And let's talk some more Final Fantasy VII. Also, make sure to check us out on youtube.com slash allinpodcast, twitch.tv slash allinpodcast, and do please like and follow the podcast itself on whichever platform you happen to be listening to our sultry voices on, whether it be (laughs) iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Podchaser. And of course, as always, Seth? Drop those words, y'all. Drop those words on Podchaser and on iTunes. You can also rate us on Spotify. So if you do feel so inclined, if you enjoy our little three-hour Nintendo rants each and every (laughs) Saturday, do please go and tell the world how you feel about it. And speaking of that, guys, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for hanging out with us each and every Saturday, making us part of your weekly rotation. Namaste. All right, so you know... You know, talking so much about Final Fantasy VII, it's kind of making me rethink my stance on NFTs a little bit. I, I'm sure we could get some all-in FF7 NFTs made up and sell them, don't you think? No, no, I don't think we're not. Do we're not doing that? I, I, but, I thought we got over this. But but blockchain? No, no, no blockchain. You don't even know what the no. We're not doing this. You know what? No, I, I I'm sorry. This is we're not even going to talk about this. This is not a conversation. But Seth, I've, I've been reading like two articles about crypto uh, since we started this episode, and I, I think I've come around. I think they've convinced uh, okay, me. Okay, okay. You know what? No, no, I'm done. I'm done, guys. I have been The Legend of Zelda for Seth's Adventures. I'm done. I'm out of here. Bye, y'all. All right, guys. Yes, I've been the Eric Multiform Mobile Identifier. I'm going to try to chase Seth down and see if I can't convince him because, I, I mean, I do think this is a good idea. Seth, Seth, blockchain. It makes sense to me, Seth. Seth. 
I'm eager for you to see a humorous Donkey Kong by Setsun.